Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. Do you want to die, Sydney? It's your turn to scream, asshole. From the streets of Woodsboro. Back to the streets of Woodsboro. We are Halloweenies! Greetings and welcome once again to Halloweenies as our season on Scream screams on. I am one of your co-hosts, Justin, Risk Addiction Gerber. And for this episode, we are venturing into a video store from yesteryear looking for the Randy's Rex section. And lo and behold, we have found it. We've got Jack Daniels, we've got cocaine, and we are ready to party in our best sweaters. It's Paul Verhoeven's definitely not controversial, definitely not dated in any way basic instinct and we have a lot to unpack so let's skip the bits at least for the moment because inevitably we will evolve into bits at the four-hour mark of this podcast so uh let's head around and discuss when we first remember seeing this film let's start off with somebody who's also in the north side of chicago who um i'm not sure how many sweaters his person owns Mike uh, Rothman, how many how many sweaters do you own? Oh wow, I own I own a lot of sweaters. I own more jackets. Uh, and as someone who just went through twelve rounds of laundry uh, the other day, uh, I mean we're talking a monster in the closet. Uh, I <laughs> I counted all the sweaters and I was like I don't need all these, but I don't I, I do have one V neck, and I can mm. I can wear it. I tried to wear like a V neck shirt today to to kind of you know you know. Model off for my boy uh, Michael Douglas, uh, which, by the way, I'm Michael Douglas Rothman. I'm skipping the Myers this uh, this episode, going right into uh, my uh, my Jewish older brother uh, that I never had, <laughs> the the old Doug. So, love him, love him. Wait, Michael Douglas is Jewish? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, he's from a Jewish uh, Jewish family. But um, absolutely no idea. Yeah. Well, you know, he's a he's a love his voice, love his nose, love his eyes, love his hair. <laughs> And I love his body. Um, so I got to say, he was the hook for me coming into Basic Instinct growing up. Because, uh, I mean, I want to say I tried to watch like every Kuralko picture movie as a kid. Um, mm. It was just something that the films like defined my childhood in terms of like VHS tapes. And I feel like the Basic Instinct one was always like the, the, the oh, we got to get that one. Like, we got to watch this one. We've heard so much about it. Because, like, th- when this movie splashed in, like, 92, like, you je- like everyone talked about this movie. And I even, like, even as a kid, I was only, like, probably eight years old when this movie came out. That's right. But I'm I curious still, about the eight-year-old discussion but I, I Basic but, Instinct. But, but the thing is, my, my dad worked at, um, at, was coming off a of blockbuster around this time. And so he was really into, like, print media and everything. And I just remember... Sharon Stone, Michael Douglas, and like images from this movie everywhere. And I didn't obviously didn't get to see this in theaters, but when this hit VHS and especially um, black box like cable, this was like everyone in the neighborhood was like, all right, we got to watch this. <laughs> we have to see this movie. And I think it was way too over my head as a kid. <laughs> so like, I don't think I really understood it got like 
into uh, or got to the jugular of this movie until it came out on DVD later later on when I actually revisited it. And this was like one of the big like DVD releases because it came in like the ice ice pack with like the ice pick and everything. So for me, I have probably more memories um, with the actual feature from when I was like an older teen. But God, yeah, this was one of those films in the early 90s that you kind of really wanted to seek out. So that's what I remember of it. I'm shocked because obviously, you know, your dad would take you to R-rated movies when you were five. I'm surprised you didn't say, let's go check out Basic Instinct. <laughs> well, it's funny because he always had a, a, a limit, even though that limit was always blurred. Like, he took me and my brother to go see, like, Devil's Advocate when, when my brother was, like, seven years old. And I remember, like, at that point, he was like, all right, we got to go. And this is, like, 90% in the movie. And I was like, what are you fucking talking about? Like, you let us in this movie already. So, but this was for some reason, you know, obviously for many reasons, like, he was like, no. Even though I was allowed to watch T2 and, you know. Well, I think word was out about this movie before it came out, too. It wasn't like there were going to be surprises. Like, oh, there's nudity in this? I don't think that was going to be a, a real shocker if he had taken you inside. Yeah. Um, let's go to the South Side. Speaking of somebody who probably has seen every Carolco uh, production ever made, uh, who is this? Seen a good chunk of them. This is Mike, the fuck of the century Vanderbilt. Stole my and it, right. <laughs> Did I steal yours? Yeah, he's still on. I'll figure something out. I was surprised Rothman didn't take that one. No, no. I had I had another one that I was going to use, but I I figured Michael Douglas Rothman. That's a good one. It's easy. I also had civic minded, very respectable Mike Vanderbilt. Mm. You know, you should have done Vanderbilt. It wasn't very meta. You should you should have called yourself Michael Keaton Vanderbilt because, as we all know, Michael Keaton's real name is Michael Douglas. I didn't. And he know changed that. it to Keaton because of the uh, Screen Actors Guild. Oh, mm. how about that? It would have been a good bit. If you want, let's, you want to pause and go back and do that again? You want to try that again? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? I was aware of this when it came out because I was about 12, 13. You know, in, well, actually, no, I'd be 12. And I was into movies, so I was kind of aware of all the news because I'd watch Entertainment Tonight and all that junk and read Premiere Magazine. But I didn't see it until I was 19. I was dating this chick. Her best friend was into any movie that had lesbian or bisexual overtones or undertones. Wait, wait. What, what age was this? 19. Oh, I thought you were saying you were still 12. No, 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 no. I, I was didn't like, see okay, it until I was well. 19. No, <laughs> okay. no, no. And uh, I remember like thinking it was pretty good, but not thinking, uh, really not thinking it was worth all the hype at that point. But I uh, definitely have uh, come around on it. I'll assume you, you took her, or you both went to go see Wild Things. Yeah, <laughs> you know what? I didn't, but she was a big fan of Wild Things. And uh, what was the other movie. one? What was the other one? Um, uh, cruel cruel intentions. intentions. Yeah. And, real, real um, salacious looking back now. <laughs> real, real. <laughs> and of course, and talk- Bound. Yeah. Well, I feel like Bound is, is certainly like the last Bound's really good of this era, I feel like. But anyway, we'll get Bound may be my favorite. No, it is my favorite Wachowski movie, actually, but if that's a hot I'm, take. I'm excited about this episode just because all the weird Hollywood history of the mm-hmm. era that we're going to get into. And my man, well, Joe Esterhaus. There, there's Esterhaus. a lot of. <laughs> I, of course, he's your guy. Listen, yeah. <laughs> before we get into all the hubbub, we do have a special guest for this episode. Somebody who, if you're a Patreon user, you may have heard her on our 28 Days Later episode. Well, I, I don't know why I said may, because if you listen to the episode, you definitely heard her unless there's something wrong with your headphones. And, <laughs> and who is this? Hi, Megan Navarro. Thank you for having me. Megan, I don't have a catch line. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, oh, Megan Douglas Navarro. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Megan, where else can people find you, though? Because I know you've got a podcast on the uh, Bloody Disgusting Network. Yes. Uh, every week, the Bloody Disgusting podcast. Mm-hmm. Okay. The namesake. Yes, exactly. And when did you first see Basic Instinct? Kind of similar to 
Mike, uh, in the sense that my dad also took me to movies that I was too young to see. Not this one, but I remember seeing Unlawful <laughs> Entry, and that was <laughs> yeah. not anything at all that was in my... I, I would live for the monster movies. Um, so I probably saw it when he rented it on VHS, just clips and bits. I don't think I was really into it until much later when it was, you know, I was older and it was on DVD. So very same story. Yeah, I didn't see this until, no joke, two years ago. Really? Yeah, two years ago. It was one of those movies I felt like I knew the whole thing. I knew the entire yeah. movie. I, I knew the twist. I, you know, knew about all the sex in it. Um, I felt like I'd already seen it. It was kind of like Casablanca. Like, it took me years to see Casablanca because I figured, ah, oh, this is going to be a 10 out of 10. I, I'd rather see something I don't know anything about. But a couple of years ago, I just decided, you know what? I think it was on Shutter at the time. No free plugs. But... I was like, let me pop this thing on finally. And uh, it was quite the experience, I'll say for sure. I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking about this. And hey, what better way to talk about than by not talking about it? Because we do have to move on to our next section, which is about Scream. <laughs> and that's a section we call Top Story. Hi, this is Gail Weathers with an exclusive eyewitness account of this amazing breaking story. I believe the <laughs> Scream, <laughs> Scream 2022, uh, aka Five Cream. Get on top. We'll get on top. We'll have its trailer attached to the re-release of Scream in October. Is that correct? Isn't that what? Isn't that? I remember hearing it's something a, about that. It's like the rumbling right now is that they're going to have yeah. something tied to it. I don't. I mean, I. Well, that'll I, be what three months before the movie comes out. So you would assume we have a teaser or something at that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the if you look back at like the teasers for Scream, they're pretty vague. You know, like the, like w- when I was like looking for clips for Scream Three promo. I forgot that like the the trailer for the longest time for Scream Three was like literally just like the sort of smoky washover of the ghost face mask, and I kind of hope we get that for Five or Scream because I just don't really want to know anything going into this. I don't want to see anything. I don't even want to know what the stars are doing. Like I feel like in every looking back in hindsight through every Scream movie that came out, like you just know things if you know these movies and you see certain things happening in the trailer, you can kind of, your mind will start doing the, you know, putting the details together. And I feel like the less is the best because I mean, like the, the brand IP is speaks for itself. Like you really don't have to do much for it. But um, I mean, I haven't really heard anything other than the fact that like the rumor is, is that it's supposed to have something tied to this re-release in October. But Megan, have you heard anything to, you know, I've honestly tried to stay as far away from possible to keep it like the preservation of surprise. I want mm-hmm. to not know going in. Yeah. yeah. I a hundred percent agree with you on that. And I feel like whenever these big movies are coming out and every month that goes by, I think to myself, Oh wow, maybe they aren't going to show too much. And all of a sudden, you know, two months before they're <laughs> releasing know. full scenes online and four minute trailers. And here's an exclusive, here's the first 10 minutes of screen five. And I hope, I said it all out loud, so now it will inevitably happen sometime in the next three months. But uh, I'm knocking on wood. I'm knocking on wood. Megan, you've been on this season, so what? How do you feel about the Scream franchise uh, so far? And where's your where's your anticipation level overall for the uh, what we call Five Cream in honor <laughs> of the cast uh, the, the the cast and crew shirts on set? They they also called it Five Cream. Yep, exactly. That's so, right. So yeah, so. I like that better than Scream because I'm really not a fan of the. Like the naming scheme that they have going, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, Scream. Now we have to refer to them by years. So 
you know what the most frustrating part about that is if you still have cable and you're going through the channels you're watching the guide you have to see which one it is that's yeah. right because <laughs> most times i'm not going to go for the the later one yeah, <laughs> and like Candyman, they put Candyman Early Access on Amazon, and it was a screw-up, but it was the 1992 film. It just looked like it was the new one, and it's gotcha. like, this, this is yep. going to be a huge headache. Uh, naming aside, though, I am super excited for Five Cream. Where do you stand on the series as a whole? Like, where, How do you feel about the first uh, four entries over the last, my God, 25 years? I really like... The first one, mm. uh, I mean, obviously it's perfection to me. Uh, four, I enjoy. Two, I like, but I don't love it as much as some people go hard oh. for it. Mike Vanderbilt I mean, is on your same page. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm with Mike because... I, mean, I just it's, don't... It's, thematically, I don't think that it uh, works with uh, the rest of the series and making fun of an actual sequel. It feels like more of just a remake. Well, maybe that's very meta uh, remake of the first one. Yeah, and, you know, it also, it's hard not to get out of your head how they had to scramble and rearrange last Indeed. minute when things, you know, got leaked. So it's like... The mystery doesn't add up. There's a lot of stuff I love about it. I just don't love it as hard as so so many people are fanatics about that one. For me, it doesn't beat one by at all. Um, and then three, three is, you know, it's it's three. <laughs> but That's as a whole, I, I enjoy this series a lot and I'm excited for what they throw at us. Yeah, I'm honestly more at least intrigued by this upcoming legacy sequel, if you want to call it a legacy sequel, than many other legacy sequels that we've got on the way. So I'm curious. Although I, I am actually really looking forward to Don Mancini's Chucky TV series. Yeah. Um, but that's not really a movie, so I can't. It's not, the, it's not the same thing. You know, it's a whole different beast. I'm looking forward to seeing what he's going to do with that. Uh, well, again, the shorter the section is every month, in my opinion, is a good thing. Because that means the mystery is intact for Five Cream, a.k.a. Scream, a.k.a. Scream 2022, and in my heart, <laughs> Scream 5. So let's move on to our next section. Folks, I do advise um, that you strap in. Uh, maybe even with a belt to a bed or a <laughs> scarf to a bed because a this is going to be a long, long section. Because the history behind Basic Instinct is wild. It's as wild as the movie itself. <laughs> Honestly, that's not really hyperbole. It really is going to be a wild ride. I, I learned so much doing research for this. And let's get right down to it. Let's head on over to the Woodsboro Police Station. Okay, everybody listen up. Let me just say, uh, the killing of these, these teenagers has been tragic. But, uh, hey, you know, shit happens. Okay. I mean, I'm not kidding. I had so many pages of notes on this that I had to start going through and removing full paragraphs. And it's still extremely long. But I promise you, it's worth the investigation. Get ready. So, oh, we should also mention why we're doing Basic Instinct, right? Yeah, I mean, we're, well, I guess we, we could do that briefly. in the rules. For yeah, yeah, there bit, you go. So let's keep know. that in mind. But yeah. long story short, it's mentioned and there are ice picks involved in Scream, right? Yeah, yeah, no, there is. Okay, I there mean, go. Especially Long, in three, but yeah, I mean, especially it, in three, yeah. It, there's a lot of weird connected tissue to this, you know, between the, the mention of Sharon Stone in the mm. original. Um, they, you know, they do name drop Basic Instinct. They, the ice pick is in three. Sharon Stone started out her career with Wes Craven. Um, I mean, it, there's a lot of interesting connected tissue, but I think you can also get into some sort of spiritual and narrative links. Um, Specifically with the way that this is self-aware is 
you know, in the same way that a lot of, you know, that Scream is. I mean, maybe not so overtly, but Basic Instinct is certainly self-aware of its own noir genre aesthetics and tones and tropes and stuff like that, um, you know, even down to the actual mystery itself. So uh, I think there's a lot of linkage it's, there. It's hard to tell when Paul Verhoeven is being serious and when he's making fun of you. I know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I, or just totally unaware. <laughs> that could be another yeah. thing with Paul Verhoeven. Yeah. A strength and a weakness, in my humble opinion. But let's get into it. So... I will give everybody here, real quick, three guesses um, from, from which American city screenwriter Joe Esterhaus found inspiration for his basic instinct story. Three cities. Megan, Please. what do you think? Los Angeles. That's one guess. That's wrong. I mean, San Francisco, but I'm sure that's too wrong. obvious. Wrong. There's no way you're going to guess another people guess this. Ohio. <laughs> Cincinnati. Cleveland or Cincinnati? <laughs> Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland. <laughs> Cleveland, Ohio. That's right. It's Cleveland, Ohio. Um, Estros lived there for a lot of his life. And that just, there's, so here's some stories he heard while living in Cleveland. Uh, this is from a really fascinating podcast episode he did from the Hollywood Reporters. It happened in Hollywood Pod. Estros says, I knew one particular cop that I liked who had been accused. This is funny to me. This says this. Just no, just down nowhere here. I knew one particular cop that I liked who had been accused in three or four different police shootings. <laughs> okay, uh, we drank together, we we hung out together, and I got the feeling that he really liked using a gun. Uh, Great later guy. On, it's, worth, it's worth noting that Esther House was uh, a uh, journalist at this point. I'm, I'm yes, figured. yes. Yeah. Uh, He's lived the life. He's lived the life. He was spent, spent spent time in a Nazi camp in Hungary before he moved to Ohio. With his family, uh, just a wild life. Oh, you got well, a David, 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 He's like David Chase a little bit, I guess. Um, before he gets to, uh, you know, Basic Instinct. Exactly. Just some light history, I guess. Before Basic Instinct. Uh, later on, he says that he he had a tempestuous relationship with a quote unquote gorgeous woman who was a quote unquote expert manipulator, and he imagined what would happen if the cop friend he had hooked up with a woman like that, who's a killer. And when he finally wrote down the right the script in 1990, he said he wrote it in less than two weeks. I believe it. Yeah. Uh, the, the original title was uh, Love Hurts. Yeah. But he says as he walked the manuscript down to the FedEx office to ship it to his agent, inspiration struck and the title Basic Instinct popped in his head. So he turned around, typed up a new title page, mailed off the manuscript. How much of this is just Hollywood romanticism? With Joe Esterhaus, anything goes. You know, uh, who knows? But... Uh, the, the screenplay had a then historic bidding war in Hollywood, and he sold it for $3 million, which would be about $6 million today. Jesus Christ. For a three, screenplay. Just... $3 million to Carol Coe Pictures, who was notorious for overspending. Oh, yeah. Yes. They were like, like a half a billion dollars in debt by the time this movie came out, which is kind of unheard of because considering the fucking blockbusters they had under their belt. So they must have just been like oozing money like Dino De Laurentiis well, or something. I've got a little history on Carol Cole pictures that uh, let's, let's go. Uh, so uh, according to Mario Casar, the name had no meaning. He was one of the founders. He and Andrew Vajna got into a financing low budget uh, films produced by the likes of American International Pictures and ITC Entertainment. You might recognize that logo from reruns of The Muppet Show. Oh, yeah. Classic nightmare logo. Uh, they were involved in the terrific Canadian tax shelter thriller, The Silent Partner, with Elliot Gould and The Changeling, amongst uh, countless other films. 
Favorite. Uh, they first found success in 1982 with, do we know? 1982? First yeah. Blood? First Blood. Good call. Yeah. Oh, good and call. Then began a distribution deal with TriStar Pictures, who, of course, released Basic Instinct in 1985 with the release of... One guess. First Blood 2. <laughs> yeah, damn right. Rambo, First Blood I was, Part These two. are literally the obvious ones. You know, like, I, I didn't want to say it. Okay. <laughs> uh, so then TriStar began in 80... TriStar began in 82 when Victor Kaufman, a senior executive at Columbia Pictures, convinced Columbia, HBO, and CBS to share resources, split the cost of making pictures. Uh, but they were the... It's notable because they were the first new major Hollywood studio to be established since RKO in 1928. So wild. Their first production was The Natural with Robert Redford in 84. But their first release was Where the Boys Are 84, uh, which was a flop. And that film was co-distributed by the aforementioned ITC Entertainment. Now, Carol Co. was still struggling and got into the home video distribution game with their international video entertainment arm, IVE. And in 87, Carol Co. purchased... Who's what producer did they produce? Uh, did they purchase his former production facility, Mike Rothman? Uh, Dino De Laurentiis. Indeed, they did. Uh, makes, makes total sense. <laughs> in Wilmington, North Carolina. They're both very frugal with their budgets. Yeah. <laughs> so then uh, his partner, Vijin, uh, sold his uh, share to Kassar in December of 89. But uh, in 1990, Carol Coe acquired the rights to make a big sequel from the Hemdale Film Corporation. What film was that? Uh, that would be... What year? 1990. It would be Terminator 2. Terminator 2. Yeah. Uh, so they tricked then, me because that came out in 91, though. Yeah, yeah, no, but they would, I mean, they, they, I guess they, that's when they Production was 1990, right? Yeah. They acquired okay. the rights, yeah. Now, gotcha. it's funny, it's worth noting because, you know, they had a bunch of quintessential 90s hits. Total Recall, T2, Cliffhanger, and of course, Basic Instinct. Air America. Too- <laughs> no, <Yeah. okay. laughs> the studio struggled artistically. Uh, they attempted to produce a Spider-Man film with James Cameron. Uh, mm. And then financially... And, of course, it was during the production of Cutthroat Island that uh, killed the studio. Carol yeah. Coe sold off the rights to their remaining films, Last of the Dogmen, Stargate, and another Joe Westerhouse joint. Jade. What's up? Jade? No. Nope. Showgirls. Oh. Okay. Oof. Sold off the rights to finance the film, and in November 1995, Carol Coe filed for bankruptcy. Island flopped that Christmas, and Carol Coe sold its assets to Canal Plus, for $58 million in January of 1996. Wow. Good history there. Yeah. I will say, I always saw that they took the Carol Kill name from the actor who played Archie Bunker's uh, theater group. Oh, Lord. Anybody <laughs> <laughs> gets the joke? Not the, uh, let us know. Not the, first sit, not the last sitcom reference we're going to have on this episode. Classic 70s sitcom. I had a it question. Would better, I swear, the joke would have been better if I went straight, if I said Carol Burnett's yeah, comedy well, troupe. I, Carol it still Cole. works though. It still works. Either way, it's fine. I so I wonder, you know, does did you think Jerry Goldsmith did the music for their logo? Like it sounds That's like a good question. It sounds like all of his scores. I always thought. I thought it always sounded like the music for like Total Recall. It sounds like the music here. It's I don't know. Just it felt very metallic. I, every time I watch it, I always think like there's got to be. It's like they had it in mind. Like all right, yeah, that that Corolco logo is like like that, and like Cyberdyne systems are like entwined for some reason in my head. I always just thought that. I feel like the only uh, like movie logo whose music I know who, who like who did the music for would would be Michael Kamen's Morgan Creek. Ah, uh, classic. 
Because and it's the Robin, the Prince of Thieves. That wasn't know. originally intended to be the logo music. That just oh, happened to be they the like, this is Robin the best thing we'll ever right? hear. So, yeah. yeah, it was Robin Hood before yeah. that, yeah. Um, anyway, I'm a big fan of that. All right, Mike, you should look up the Carol Coe, who did the theme song. The theme song, like, <laughs> it was like open <laughs> credits. All right, here's some more information, though. Uh, we, we talked a lot about Joe Strauss already, but he also had, before this, he had done similarly. Oh, get this, hold on. Oh, boy. So the first logo for Carol Cole well, ran from May 22nd to 1985 to September 4th, 1987. Okay. The theme was composed by Gary Goldsmith. Wow. There you go. So it makes sense. They have those, the, the, you know, it had that metallic sound. The big sweeping sound of Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah. Now, let's Joe Estoros' career before this. <laughs> similar, similarly hinged movies, I would say. Well, Flashdance isn't really a thriller by any means, but it's definitely, you know, it's definitely it, it fits. Yeah, it fits into that kind of uh, what do I want it. That sexy. It's not thriller, but like those sexy movies that uh, you just don't see anymore. Yeah, yeah. And then, but then this run is very similar because you got Jagged Edge, Betrayed. Right. Read this. Read the plot to Betrayed. By the way, it's it's uh, it's one hell of a plot. Uh, and yeah, then I after get, this, I, I want to get to that one. That one sounds good. It's yeah. got my boy Berenger in it. Yeah, he's a real. You, this, this, <laughs> He's a real every ace. one of these movies would yeah. never be made today. I'll put it yeah, that way. When you read the when you read the romantic plot <laughs> to betray, yeah. um, yeah. you're ready. Okay, but then after this, he did Sliver, Showgirls, and Jade, and these are all very you know sexually tinged erotic cinema. You know what I mean? And I feel like aside from Fifty Shades of Grey, these movies are just gone, right? Oh yeah, no. I don't. I'm sure some someone's got to be out there making them. I do feel. I think we may have talked about this on one of the other episodes. I think you only you kind of see this kind of erotic uh, thriller more aimed towards black audiences these days. But That's the movies just kind of go. They go under the radar because there's so much other stuff out in theaters. Like I feel there was one a couple years ago that I cannot recall the name of. Well, that, like Fifty Shades of Grey was kind of this many phenomena. But even when you look at that movie, despite all the BDSM that goes on, it's so tame compared to these '90s movies, and the '80s <laughs> movies. You know, it's just not. It's almost like a PG-13 version of the, of eroticism, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Blake Goble actually wrote about this uh, a few years ago from mm. a former site, and like, um, they, it's great. He basically asked, like, where did all the adult thrillers go? And they're gone. I mean, like, they, with the exception of like Gone Girl, which we had in 2014. Um, which certainly is cut from this. Oh, that cloth. fits into that. You know, absolutely. I mean, like it's the whole time, like saying a girlfriend was just basically screaming, like this is literally the blueprint for, um, you know, a- you know, Amy in uh in Gone Girl. I mean, like it's mm. that that same sort of thriller. But that used to be like every other week you'd get those movies, and it used to be because you know you'd have the adults that go to the theater. They want to have that sort of escapism. And that sort of that that sex and violence that's that you know that goes together like peanut butter and chocolate and like it just doesn't exist anymore. And I think a lot of the reason why is because you know not only just because we've we've moved into this IP obsessed era, but also because I feel like you know for that genre and that mix to exist, you kind of need to be built on what the '90s was capitalized on was the star making system, you know, like this is a star picture. Like this is, you know, it, it starts with Michael Douglas being like, Oh, this is his next vehicle, pretty much his big comeback after in, in the, in the nineties to being, Oh, this is a Sharon Stone vehicle now. Like, you know, 
and that just doesn't happen anymore. Like you don't really see, like when do you read the trades and you're like, oh, this star is doing this. Like, no, it's this IP. And then you hear about the, maybe the filmmaker. And then you hear about like, you know, the stars that are going to be attached to it. But it's always the afterthought considering the fact that like the big hook is whatever thing is going into production. And that's just, it's, and, it's just opposite now. And Mike, let me add on to that. I think another problem is that there is, does seem to be an obsession with likable characters mm-hmm. in movies. Uh, you have to be, you have to moralistically and, uh, you know, politically align with the characters in movies. And I don't think there's really anybody in basic instinct I can say that about. Um, I see. I would agree. Megan, what do you think about that take about audiences needing to feel a hundred percent like represented on screen, like, like the idealistic version of themselves as opposed to having just assholes I, running around. What I do you think, think the taste is now? I think he nailed it. Yes. I mean, you look at social media discourse around film and, and there, there's so much about the morality and mm-hmm. you have to be representative mm-hmm. of like virtue. And if you aren't, then this is bad and this is problematic. And that's the counterintuitive to something like nineties erotic thrillers. Oh, can like, you even imagine if Twitter was around in 1992? Oh, like, my goodness, yeah. <laughs> well, like I mean, it happened, This movie though. wouldn't have come out. You know? Well, <laughs> I mean, it, but it, the thing is, is that, like, I mean, to the credit of those that, that wanted to kind of, you know, go off against, uh, you know, films and stuff, you know, they didn't just hit Twitter. They hit the fucking streets. Like, people were on the streets with, you know... With uh, with the, signs. My favorite, and, my favorite and, sign is the one that spoils the end of the movie. Yeah, because it, the movie was being protested by uh, gay advocacy groups mm-hmm. for portraying the villains as bisexual, uh, which I understand at the time because I mean we're still fighting for gay rights, you know, mm-hmm. and it wasn't that much better in 1992. But also, part of being equal is that you can also be the bad guys. Mm-hmm. I the think movie. the issue though at the time, and I. I understand 100% where they're coming from in this actual instance is that there wasn't a lot of that on screen. Right. No, no. And all. so the fact that when you look at it, the three suspects of this movie are all what gay women or bi women is kind of a, oh, okay. Which, I, I, get the, I get the frustration. I get I In this case, I get the frustration. I, I understand it. the frustration, but on the other side, like I know that like um, my, Michael Douglas said was the point of that is that it's, you know, to use his quote from an Entertainment Weekly article we were discussing, this is a detective smut novel. Listen, mm-hmm. It's all bullshit. Like, it's just you need to have good twists. And I think that goes back to what Brian De Palma did with Dress to Kill, where I don't think he's making a statement about transgendered people i just think it was a good twist for the story yeah i mean we'll probably talk and more about film the noir always requires a big time suspension of disbelief if you're gonna if you're gonna follow these movies exactly that's true and, and i will say on top of what you were saying about the protests uh, from women's groups from lgbtq plus community groups um this is from a new york times article from 1991 as a result and there was a big meeting that actually happened with a lot of heads from those organizations and the producers of the film Joe Esterhaus, Paul Verhoeven, who we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, the article says, as a result of the meeting, Mr. Esterhaus agreed to revise the script. Esterhaus said, the people I met were intelligent, articulate, and sensitive. I felt the things they were saying made a great deal of sense. And uh, here we, and me, me, But hold on, oh, here we go. go. New York Times says, Mr. Esterhaus said he had rewritten numerous scenes and recast a part to reflect the sensitivities expressed by the gay community leaders. Verhoeven said, in my mind, these are changes that are very important in the perception of gay people and women in our society. But 
Irvin said that the changes did not affect the dramatic. Um, this is this should be the butt part. This is still a good part. <laughs> he said the changes did not affect the dramatic structure or plotting of a story. However, after he sent the proposed revisions to Verhoeven, he was told in a conference call from the director and the producer that they were rejecting all of the changes. Esserhaus said, I told them they were making a serious mistake. I asked them for a reason, and they said they didn't feel like they wanted to discuss it anymore. I'll tell you um, what, the fact that Joe Esterhaus said that he would actually make changes to a script, uh, that says that there was something to it. Uh, Verhoeven and the producer defended their project in a written statement that noted that the movie is, quote-unquote, and this is true, it's a psychological thriller about a police detective investigating a series of brutal, baffling murders. It is not a negative depiction of lesbians and bisexuals, the statement said. Mm-hmm. It also said that Mr. Esterhaus's changes undermined the strength of Esterhaus's original material— Weaken the characters which he so vividly portrayed and lessens the integrity of the picture itself. So then Esteros said, I'll this back and forth. Because, you know, there was no Twitter. You had to like open the paper and read Esteros' response <laughs> in some magazine a month later. Uh, he said, In 15 years of screenwriting, I fought a lot to protect my scripts. This is the first time I fought to change my own script. <laughs> I find myself in a very perverse situation. In some ways, it's the same fight, but I'm in a different corner. So I would love to read whatever changes he decided he wanted to make. I'm yeah, very curious like, about the, what that would have been. That ended up being like five drafts of the script before they went back to his original script, too. Like as I'm sure we'll get to in this production history that's going to take up most of the episode. Well, and much to the chagrin of Michael Douglas, because like he wanted things to be changed so that he was a little bit more masculine on the on, on paper, which is hilarious given the, the you know the the nature of what's you know would end up kind of being on on screen, but like. I think that was a lot of, I wonder if that was a lot of the, I, that's what I read. I, I read that they did make changes and then they rejected him. And then he was angry about that because mm. not only, be, not because it wasn't preserving what was going on, you know, with, with the queer arc, but because he was still a flimsy, you know, uh, emasculated cop. <laughs> I felt like that's why he had a gripe with it. I think that some of those changes made its way to the screen though. Because I never felt like, for instance, if you watch Basic Instinct two, which by no means, by no means, <laughs> I, is a I good wanted movie. to get to that. I wanted to get to. We'll, that we'll talk one. about that in a minute. We'll talk about that. But that is an instance of somebody on screen who's totally emasculated mm-hmm. and has like lost all of his ego. Whereas I feel Basic Instinct, we'll talk about this later too. But I mean, this is like everybody in this movie is is Al Pacino and Heat. Yeah, everybody's oh, totally. dialed up to like 150. So it's almost impossible to have anybody's ego or anything diluted because they're still acting like they're just marching into one scene from the other, like on a mission and, and, and like angry and just like really, really, everybody's just ready to like have sex. In this well, movie, and that's, and that, that comes down to the performances less than the script, I would argue, because like you even read like quotes with uh, Stone during this time and she was like saying like, well, I didn't get along with, you know, Douglas, but I think that worked for our advantage because our performances were more primal. You know, like she was basically working all she was basically tangoing with with Douglas the entire time because everything was blocked for the most part. They talk a lot about how a lot of the scenes are choreographed, even down to like walking into a fucking apartment. And a lot of that comes down to the body language of what the, you know, the respective ego of each character has. And I think that goes beyond the script. I think like the way that Douglas presents himself, I think if you read this black and white on the script, that's a lot different than what you see on screen with Douglas actually acting it out in the same way with, you know, Catherine Trammell. Like, I think that there's the, the way that they do that with, with the way that she brings her um, performance to life is probably a lot different than what's the, the translation is from page to screen. So I, I don't know. I, I think a lot of it really does come down to how, 
they put it out there. Um, oh, I agree. I think know. that, and I think Doug was a hundred percent trying to act as tough as possible. Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe even a thousand percent. Yeah. I mean, he's <laughs> Crockett on cocaine or Crockett on even more cocaine. Um, it's true. There's less pastel, less white suits basically yeah. is what's going on here. More socks. Yeah. I think is, is what he's doing here. More so Bart Simpson keychains. Um, <laughs> that's Indicative it. That's of it. the era. Something else we definitely have to talk about that's, that's reemerged is the infamous interrogation scene mm. and famous scene. Both. We use both. Not mutually exclusive. And Sharon Stone, I've got to read her memoir. Because this, is a, this isn't a case of somebody ghostwriting. I really felt like she wrote this memoir. And there's a great excerpt that came out in Vanity My favorite Fair bit about Sharon year. Stone was that she was just she was on uh, Bumble. Like she was actually she, yeah, she on, mentioned that she's she on Bumble, but people didn't Bumble, believe. And nobody believed, like she had to like fight with the company because no, they did not believe yep. that it was actually her. Well, this is a fascinating thing. I was trying to thing. match with her in L.A. When I was out in L.A., I was, she never came up, though. It'd be funny if you were in L.A., like beautiful L.A., there's so much to do, and you're sitting in your hotel room, like just constantly refreshing Bumble, waiting for Sharon's. <laughs> it just says Sharon, too, I'm sure, to pop up. Um, uh, what a creepy we, We've got to talk about Jesus. this interrogation scene. We've got to talk about this. We've got to talk about the Sharon Stone experience with the movie, specifically. A um, couple of things before that, though. She does talk about the fact that she um, had done Total Recall. Uh, with Paul Verhoeven, that obviously led to her really getting the part. She and he really fought for her to get this part because Michael Douglas had no interest in testing with her. He really wanted this to be a huge hit with with stars. And I think at the time, like Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, Gina turned Davis it down. was into running. Yeah, Gina Davis. Oh, yeah, funny, after watching Batman tons. Returns, when you watch Batman Returns, you're like, oh yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer would have been amazing in this movie though, but it wouldn't have been the same. And Mike, you mentioned there's some tension I think with, with Sharon Stone and some other people in the in the movie, but she said ultimately um, after, especially after the making of the movie, Michael Douglas did become very supportive of her, hosted her at Cannes. They've, they've been great friends over the last 30 years, so that's a happy ending, I guess, in that case. One of many happy endings during this episode we'll be discussing. Uh, but the big excerpt here, which I gotta read, is about that interrogation scene. And Sharon Stone says, after we shot Basic Instinct, I got called in to see it. Not on my own with the director, as one would anticipate, given the situation that's given us all pause, so to speak. Ha <laughs> ha. But with a room full of agents and lawyers, most of whom had nothing to do with the project, that was how I saw my vagina shot for the first time. Long after I'd been told, we can't see anything, I just need you to remove your panties as the white is reflecting the light. So we know you have panties on. Yes, there have been many points of view on this topic, but since I'm the one with the vagina in question, let me say the other points of view are bullshit. <laughs> Paul Verhoeven's response to this excerpt is... Uh, my memory is radically different from Sharon's memory, and has nothing to do with the wonderful way that she portrayed Catherine Trammell. She is absolutely phenomenal. We still have a pleasant relationship and exchange text messages, but her version is impossible. She knew exactly what we were doing. I told her it was based on the story of a woman that I knew when I was a student who did the crossing of her legs without panties regularly at parties. When my friend told her we could see her vagina, she said, of course, that's why I do it. Then Sharon and I decided to do a similar sequence. Hmm. Okay, well, Sharon well, Stone the, continues. <laughs> and a funny uh, now, thing about, I was about to say, the, the yeah, best part about, one of another good parts about that is that I was watching an interview with Joe Esteraz, and uh, it pains him that he did not write that scene and that it was the director that did it. Because if you know anything about Joe Esterhaz, he really fought for the screenwriter being the the auteur. And to have a director come up with the most memorable scene in a movie on your script must frustrate to him to no end. I I believe it. I believe it. So, but here's the thing about Sharon Stone. She says, now here's the issue. After, I, after she had seen the scene. It didn't matter anymore. 
It was me and my parts up there. I had decisions to make. I went to the projection booth, slapped Paul Verhoeven across the face, left, went to my car, and called my lawyer. And they told me that they could not release this film as it was. That I could get an injunction. Because at the time, it would have given the movie an X rating uh, in 1992. You can't, you, can do that. you can't do it like you can now. You can show, she says you can show erect penises on Netflix. I haven't seen anything on Netflix with erect penises, but I guess Sharon Stone has. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, Look at her watch list. I exactly. I'm curious know, now. Right? Let's see. What's, the, what's Sharon Stone's algorithm now on Netflix? Yes. I'm really curious. Uh, she said, I thought about it. She said, what if I were the director? What if I had gotten that shot? What if I had gotten it on purpose or by accident? What if it just existed? There was a lot to think about. I knew what film I was doing. For heaven's sake, I fought for that part, and all the time, only this director had stood up for me. I had to find some way to become objective. I had spent so long coming to the project that I had fully examined the character and the dangerousness of the part. I came, I came to work ready to play Catherine Trammell. Now I was being challenged again. After the screening, I let Paul know of the options Marty laid out for me. Marty's her lawyer. Of course, he vehemently denied that I had any choices at all. I was just an actress, just a woman. What choices could I have? But I did have choices. So I thought and thought, and I chose to allow this scene in the film. Why? because it was correct for the film and for the character, and because, after all, I did it. So it's fascinating to go, you know, it's obviously a specific person's choice. You know, it's, I feel this also kind of goes into, we talk about the, today's discourse about, well, I would never do this, I would never do that, I would never do this, I would never do that, but if it's up to the person to make the decision and they choose to do it, then they chose to do it. You know what I mean? I, I just feel like that gets lost today, too. That, that everything does, everything not maybe not everything, but a lot of things do have nuance when I don't think people can see that. I'm not sure. I think it really speaks to Stone's um, conviction in the sense that, and also like self-awareness because mm -hmm. like when you think of basic instinct, like it's synonymous with Sharon Stone. Like, sorry. Absolutely. Sorry, Mikey Douglas. Uh, this isn't your movie. This hey, is so one above the title, by the way. He's yeah, the only well, one above the title. Well, and that's what I, I, I actually agree with Faye Dunaway who like kind of ripped him apart being like, why isn't this Sharon Stone at the top building? Cause it's her fucking movie. Like I, and she's so self, she's so smart in being self-aware about it because like when you think of it then, and it's certainly now, like, She's the cell. She's the hook. She's the pull. She's what the the French call the 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 raison d'être. The raison d'être. And I I mean everything else is a distant second. Like even the mystery of the movie. Like you don't really even give a shit anymore because it's like it's just it's a stone show, and like a lot of that speaks to the fact that like you know Sharon Stone was a sex icon and she was you know she was one that was building up towards this and this was probably like this was her you know her the the pinnacle of of her being the sex icon and that define the movie and she's smart a star making it. performance if you well will. not even just the star making it's it's just a, it's like this it's a separate star making thing like if you think about it like when you think of sex icon it's one of those things where it's like it's like the defining like thing of whatever that's attached to like when you think of like i mean i guess there's exceptions to the rule like when i think of like some like at hot i mean i'm sure you, a lot of people think of like jack lemon and stuff but for the most part like that was a marilyn monroe like i i think like it's the same thing here and like even so, like I, so I went back to like a lot of like the talk show host appearances and stuff during this time, and I remember even like through like Entertainment Weekly and Premier Magazine, like it was just Sharon Stone, Sharon Stone, Sharon Stone, and it makes sense because like, you know, not only is it just because of the scene, but it was just because like she's the force that you're going to be watching the entire time in this movie, and 
you know, this film is so synonymous with her name and like the intrigue and sexuality that it really did follow her everywhere. I mean, like you watch her appearance on David Letterman, like he's so flummoxed that he can't even he can't even introduce her right and that's not a bit either like he literally is just, he flubs the, the the introduction and he's just like laughing about it and throughout the whole interview he does his i mean then he gets into his letterman shtick that uh, that conan certainly took where they they just kind of get very um you know boyish and stuff with it but like you know Verhoeven capitalizes on an energy here and it's smart be- that she capitalized on it too because she certainly owns it and that quote right there proves that you know like and it's smart like because she knew exactly what this movie was going to do not you know not only just you know performance wise at the box office but for her own name as well and you know it's followed her ever since like you know yeah she's great in casino she got nominated for it she's we'll talk more about her performances but like it's always gonna be basic instinct and Sharon stone for i mean that's just reality of it all but yeah megan what scene like what scene when you when somebody says to you basic instinct which i'm sure happens every other day when somebody <laughs> just comes up to you in the middle of the street the and time. says basic instinct what's the first image that pops in your head i mean that is by far and away the thing that people think of like instantaneously when you think of basic instinct like when you were i mean that that before long before i'd even actually watched the movie i knew this this scene that's mm-hmm. the thing that people talk about I mean, think of all the places that it was parodied, including uh, Nash ah. Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1. Yeah, which is a great uh, scene, to be honest. But Was it like the, lo- like the long, like, whoop? Yeah. <laughs> and they have, the, they have a, an actual beaver sitting there smoking a cigarette. <laughs> Jesus. God. Loaded Weapon 1. I, 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 funny enough, I actually saw that for the first time this past year. It was uh, a long year and a half, everybody. I was watching a lot of movies. I was like, you know what? Now's the time to, to just sit here and watch these movies. But it's so emblematic of its era because, like, I mean, this is so this is 92. I mean, I was trying to think of other movies that literally are like the star vehicle, you know, that are like, like literally right before this. That's that, that you just think of like one star, one film. That is why you're going to see this. And like, I can't really think of too many. I mean, I guess Bodyguard with like, but that's, you know, with Whitney Houston and everything. But she like, was so established before that, though. Exactly. You know? Like, so this is like, I know. That's I another that. good production hell script, too. But, oh, that's been around since, I think, the 70s. It was originally intended to be Steve McQueen and Diana Ross, which is why uh, Kevin Costner has that stupid-ass haircut in that movie. Well, I mean, he's but, doing his best Steve McQueen. That makes there you go. But okay. it's that same mentality of the bodyguard in that everyone's going to see the bodyguard because they love Whitney Houston. They want to see her perform in this with this. And this is going to sound crude, but it's true is that everyone's going to see basic, basic instinct because literally every person going into this is basically thinking of like, there's the, there's this, this, there's sexuality in there. There's everyone want, like everyone on screen and like outside of the screen it's the idea of like, oh my God, she's there. There's the sex bomb right there. This is a sex icon, and like, in a way, looking back thirty years, it's antiquated. Like we don't really have that anymore. Like, in, well, I in think Hollywood. at the I time, I don't think we do. Like, I, we don't. I, we don't have to get into our sex lives here. I assure you. <laughs> but I, I feel like, um, yeah, just let everybody know. But I will say that watching this movie. That must seem so taboo 30 years ago. I feel like a lot of the actions going on are kind of like, oh, okay, well, you know, that stuff happens now. Well, Everybody kind of does a lot of this stuff. Uh, sans, you know, ice picks going through the eye. <laughs> Other than that, I feel like it's pretty much, oh, yeah, I mean, well, they're just having sex. I think really, that goes to know? a point about uh, moralism when it comes to film, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. especially when you are going to protest something or make a thing about, like, you have to remember, like, how are you going to sound? How are you going to look in 10 
15, 20, 30 years, 30 years. Yeah. because the times will change and it's like films like basic instinct and like something like William Freakman's cruising, which were protested at the time are now considered like camp classics in, uh, certain communities. And this, and, and like the, maybe uh, the BDSM definitely... and the kink that's in this movie that is relatively tame, uh, is no big deal because you can see much more wild stuff just on your Twitter feed, particularly on my uh... Twitter feed. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah seriously, considering the fact that I see you uh, liking things all the time, and um, it's hilarious. I'm always like classic Mike. No shame. Um, I know, I know, and I, that's what I love about you. Throwing back to the whole era of it all, I mean, do you think, like, audiences have changed. I feel like growing up, you know, even the 80s and the 90s, where you had you know, the video nasties to the mm-hmm. erotic thriller 90s, mm-hmm. and we kind of flocked to that. Like, ooh, it's taboo. I exactly. need to know. Exactly. But now it's like, ooh, it's taboo. Like, that's problematic. Exactly. And I, I think uh, yeah. that's... But I think that's a... I don't know if it's a problem, per se. Maybe we were just growing up. But at the same time, I think that there's a there's a maturity to being able to call it out. But then I also think that you fall back into the sort of puritanical yeah it's too oh, puritan- yeah. It, oh, that, i was gonna that's say my it's problem with it, like. my big thing is it, it, it kind of goes back to the um the parental advisory on on albums mm-hmm. uh was tipper gore's movement people forget like tipper gore you know her husband her husband then was a democrat so this wasn't some big republican movement that needs to be remembered but people i think a lot of times people will use problematic as a crutch or as an excuse to um have their stance on something and that's when uh you know liberalism goes all the way back to conservatism in a way of, it's like almost pro censorship. Like you shouldn't be watching this. You shouldn't be seeing this. Well, that's where that idea of, I don't know if it's necessary, but the idea of the nanny state comes mm-hmm. in. We're going to tell you what you can and cannot watch. Uh, and that's where, that's where liberalism gets dicey for well, me. The, 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 yeah. the problem I have with uh, a lot of well, this, you know, me as a, as a huge conservative, yeah. well, <laughs> I've always known. Well, I know that you were big on, I mean, when we first met, you still were wearing your dull, uh, you know, 94 shirt or whatever, but, um, no, I'm just yeah, well, he was hey, remember for when, Senate 94 to be fair. Yeah, remember, yeah, when Dole, remember when Dole fell off the stage? Yeah, that's, I don't I remember, remember that. I do oh, remember when Kelsey Grammer fell off the stage. Uh, but, Dole, Bob, Bob Dole's got a good fall. I'm sure it's on YouTube. But the thing, he was okay. So it's funny to laugh. The the thing I love about this movie is that it's so it accepts that. And what I love about Verhoeven in general is that it accepts the fact that, like, you know, to to lean on the the title is that our basic instincts and our primal, uh, like our primal urges, are 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 things that we we can't really like dismiss. You know, like every like what Megan was saying, like we are fascinated by the taboo, Mm -hmm. like we are intrigued by the you know the stuff that 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 the allure of, um, you know, whether it's sexual, whether it's gross, whether it's something that's going to turn our heads. And I feel one of the problems with like a lot of the culture today is that like, as for as progressive as we are right now in this country, which to be honest with you, look, I've said it multiple times on this podcast, elsewhere in person, we won the culture war won. Sorry, we won progress won. We, the fact that like, I can literally come out and say, Hey, I'm pansexual. I don't really, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like I probably wouldn't have done that 20 years ago. And the fact that we are doing that right now and you have more and more stars that are doing it, that's a great thing. I mean, fucking Christ's sake, Michael Douglas couldn't even be bisexual in this movie. And I'm sure he would now, considering the fact that he played Liberace. But that's progress to me. That's a good point. But like, we point. still act as if, like, but, like, we can't accept and celebrate the progress by, because we, now we want to like slap people for like indulging in some of the impulses a little bit. Like, even if we're not actually doing the things, but we're actually 
acknowledging the fact that we have these basic instincts to keep it on the titular theme like we don't uh, we can't just accept it like we have to like we, we almost like uh, we almost like slap people's wrists for it as opposed to like being like well yeah these things exist we just have to be fucking self-aware of how far we're gonna go with it but like look, you can be whatever you want as long as you do it like we tell you to like yeah. as long as you do it the right way exactly and that's my problem with where i think a lot of discourse goes today where it's like why can't we just fucking accept the fact that like like people want to fuck whoever they want to fuck and like and but the fact is like people probably want to do it and like i don't know it's just i feel like we're so pg about things when we should just i don't know anyway. well everybody needs a good cry and and basic instinct doesn't make me cry so maybe that's an issue um but it does go well, hopefully to, ghostbusters uh, ghostbusters will come november oh um, thank god finally <laughs> i been waiting 40 years to cry during a ghostbusters movie it's sad when gus gets it uh like, uh, well, we'll talk about Gus and how I feel about the believability that this character was a living, breathing human being within the movie later on. Mike, you know, you made a passing reference to Paul Verhoeven. We've got to talk about here, though. A uh, very famous Dutch filmmaker. He made a number of movies in Denmark before coming stateside. And funny enough, 20 seconds, Mike Vanderbilt, I saw that you did see... One of his Rucker Hauer collaborations from the, uh, was it the 80s or late 70s? 1985, from the States, though. Well, actually, it was a, uh, sorry, we're, gonna talk, we're talking about Flesh and Blood, Hit of it. course. 20 which seconds. was a uh, joint production between, I want to say, the Netherlands and the U.S. and Australia. And it's a uh, kind of a medieval fantasy. Not with, like, magic and stuff like that, but uh, very cool, very bloody, very funny picture. Like, you really get, like... Paul Verhoeven is not happy with how the film turned out. It's not necessarily his vision, but I think you still feel his touch all over it. That kind of sardonic sense of humor. Uh, and I, I, I like it because it's a medieval film of the 80s. I, I think when they make medieval films now, it, they're too dour looking. Everything just looks gray. Like this mm. one has a little bit of color to it, which I dig. But also, you know, it kind of goes into those Paul Verhoeven tropes. It's slightly satirical. There is an uncomfortable rape sequence with Jennifer Jason Lee, but also a who's who of pretty great character actors, including uh, what's his name? Tote from Raiders of the Lost Ark, Bruno Kirby, uh, Brian Tote? James. <laughs> Harrison Ford? No, Tote. What's his name? Oh, Tot. 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 Tote. <laughs> Bellock. The actor's actually in something else? Wow, okay. Well, yeah, listen, well, I, I said 20 whole, seconds. I, I, didn't say, I didn't say 200 seconds, but yeah. um, everybody go check out Flesh, Flesh and Blood. Flesh and Blood's awesome. And make I sure not to get it. confused with the Dennis Quaid, Meg Ryan, it, Flesh exactly. and Blood from 1993. There's Please a don't plus get confused. in this title. It's not Flesh and Blood. It's Fled Plus, plus Blood. Right, listen to this 10-year run that Paul Verhoeven had. Amazing. Robocop, Polar Recall, Basic Instinct, Showgirls, We'll call it classic. Starship Troopers. That's pretty incredible. I um, toss in Hollow Man. I had fun with Hollow no, Man. No, but Hollow Man was after the 10 years. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's true. That was like, what, 2000 or something like that? 2001? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hollow Man. Yeah, people know Hollow Man. And something that came out a couple years ago, also a very provocative movie to say the very least, but I thought it was very good. I'm not sure if everybody here has seen Elle. Uh, right. That was my favorite movie. That Megan, you've seen it? Yes, I love it. Love it. Really good. Again, Paul Verhoeven's complicated relationship with sexual assault. Honestly, yeah, and that's again him just sinking into something that was everyone considers problematic, and like I mean, for rightfully so, but like people couldn't. The discourse around that movie was so aggravating because it was like 
you had a lot of, you know, a lot of sides that were great arguments, but like, oh my God, there was a lot that I feel like they missed the point of the movie. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know. Obviously, I don't know Paul Verhoeven. And we are both <laughs> Dutch. We don't have like the Dutch meetings. But like I always picture that the he's just Dutch ca- meetings. The Dutch meetings. <laughs> I've had Dutch meetings since I met with, with Ed O'Neill and uh, <laughs> Ethan Randall at the time. But I don't think I always get the feeling when uh, ever Paul Verhoeven's like looking at a script, writing a script, or like, and he's always just kind of giggling like a schoolboy. Like it, I think he's just always tickled by stuff like this. Well, speaking of being tickled by this type of content, uh, have we everybody familiar with this latest movie that's also <laughs> getting Can't a lot wait. of controversy? <laughs> And I'm excited check this out. for it. Yeah. I'm excited. I agree, Megan. It's Benedetta about uh, apparently lesbian nuns. So I'm sure that's going to go over hey. well with everybody. The nunsploitation <laughs> really... subgenre is one of my favorite uh, exploitation it uh, took, movements of the 70s. Yeah, I was going to say it took about a 45 year break, but Paul Verhoeven's bringing it back. He's going to have the fun thing about that, though, he's going to have people on every side upset with him. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing it. 100%. He probably revels in it too. Of course, you know he, he loves doesn't it. care. You he's know he probably, fucking he's loves a, it. He's got so much money. Who cares? He's, he's, like, he's, he's, he's set. Fuck he's you! Done. I make RoboCop. Do we think? <laughs> do, we, do we think that at the end of Benedetta, like we find out that it's actually Valak? Oh, Valak from the Nun. As part of the Conjuring universe, <laughs> the entire time. <laughs> yeah, what if? Yeah, there's a, there's a painting of like we'll never forget Benedetta. I'm sure that's her name, and not like, like a benediction in, in, the, in another language. Yeah, and it's like, just like it's, the, 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 the painting slowly fades into Valak. <laughs> Annabelle somewhere in the convent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. Now I'm imagining uh, lesbian dolls. Uh, well, we've we've come full circle with Annabelle and uh, and Abetta. Okay, here's some notes that I didn't really have a section for. But just some, I'm going to toss this out here. Wouldn't you love to see, you know, they've got that documentary on uh, the shower scene. Oh, yeah. Hulu, actually. For Psycho. Yeah, yeah for Psycho. 7852. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. That's the one. I would love to, have see, to see a breakdown of that interrogation room scene. Mm-hmm. Because there are so many cuts and so many angles in that. I'm, I would love to, to see a breakdown of that. It's, it's really, it really is, you know, obviously the whole, the, the, the famous shot is in that scene. But the whole sequence is shot. It's just incredible to look at for for us film nerds. It reminds, me, it reminds me of like a mix of like Scorsese and like Raimi with the zooming and the, the zooming shots. in and the, and then the quick. Well, somebody else reminds me of, and just from the Jerry Goldsmith music, which is funny. I don't think he ever actually worked with this director, but maybe I'm missing something huge. I'm just totally forgetting. But this movie feels to me. Like a Brian De Palma movie. Yes. Oh, hundred percent. Right. Yes. Yes. Because it's it's like a Hitchcock movie, and I yeah. and I, I actually wanted to toss it out to see if he does Hitchcock better than De Palma. <laughs> mm, no, oh. I I would say no, because because the thing is when I see De Palma, I think to myself, oh, it's, this reminds me of Hitchcock. But when I watch this, I think to myself, oh, this reminds me of De Palma, which reminds me of Hitchcock. Interesting. That's a good call. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I like the elevator uh, scene alone. De Palma reminds me of is better. The the Palma's better about being playful, which I think is a major thing in Hitchcock's work. Basic Instinct never necessarily nails that. I don't think the way that Brian De Palma does. Yeah, there's really not a there's not a self aware wink that you get in a De Palma movie. Where I think you know, I think the argument I'd make is that you watch De Palma and you could so clearly f- figure out what he's being indebted to. Like you like, it's just like sometimes it's so obvious to the point where I I, I have to roll my eyes and I, I grit my teeth a little bit because I'm like, all right, you're getting a little too literal here, um, you know, even down to the fucking sound cues and carry. But um, with the one thing I'll give to Verhoeven is that like it seems a little more ethereal, you know, like the fact that this is set in San Francisco, it's like Vertigo, 
he makes a lot of allusions to vertigo. I mean, I, I think you could even make the argument that Catherine's wardrobe in the interrogation scene is is a lot like um, uh, Kim Novak. Kim and Novak and yeah, and Vertigo also. Um, I believe they even used like a church at one point that's from Vertigo that's kind of similar to the same shot. But old, old white fil filmmakers will literally just remake Vertigo instead of going to therapy, right? Yeah, well, that's, that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, but I, I just think it's a little bit more vague and, and murky or ethereal than, than say, like the literal like stuff that, that De Palma takes. But I don't know if that means it translates better. I think, mm. you know... But I, I mean, you can't watch this movie and not think of Hitchcock. I mean, even down to like Gus's death, like it's literally something from like, well, or not even just Hitchcock, like that, that Gus thing was like, reminds me of De Palma for sure. Um, yeah. Down to like, Dress well, the, to Kill. the elevator scene, it's, it seems like a straight from Dress to Kill yeah. as opposed to any Hitchcock yeah. movie. Yeah. And obviously but, influenced um, by Giallo. Oh, 100%. But it's funny because when you think about um, Verhoeven, he didn't really do any other types of movie like, like this one, right? Oh. type of movies like this it's a straight up erotic thriller I think that Verhoeven's strength as opposed to the Palma though is I think that when Verhoeven goes really 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 big and like a hyper reality he's extremely successful and I think he's better at that than De Palma is mm -hmm. um, I'll, give, I'll definitely give him that 100% De Palma kind of wallows in the same tropes and genre whereas Verhoeven he mixes it up Flesh mm -hmm. and Blood, uh, you know, a med medieval uh, fantasy, RoboCop, sci-fi, uh, Basic Instinct, straight-up thriller. Um, I'm probably missing a couple in there. Well, there's totally a lot of sci-fi fantasy yeah, a lot stuff of sci-fi, though, yeah. For sure. Especially, and then satire. He also nails satire better than um, De Palma. Yeah. Oh, totally. Megan, I know you hate Brian De Palma. Oh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, what, do you, <laughs> what do you think? Did any of this remind you of, like, a Brian De Palma or... Hitchcock, anything stand out specifically? Well, yeah, I mean, De Palma did a lot. Of, he he plays in the noir sandbox a lot, and this mm. is very noir. So, yeah, there, there's overlap for sure. Uh, yeah, I just always wonder, because this is also a very strange era for De Palma, because he's coming off of, I think, Bonfire of the Vanities, <laughs> and then I think he's about to do... Uh, Raising Cain, which is a fascinating movie. That would be an interesting movie to discuss because that's another production hell uh, movie. So I don't know how he would have done with this material anyway. But uh, it's an interesting what if. That's all I'll say. Well, look, time has been kind to Raising Cain because um, you know I, I appreciate the fact that it's now a chain restaurant. And they serve um, to, wonderful all chicken aside, fingers. Love know. the chicken fingers. <laughs> it is really strange because they've got John Lithgow smiling holding chicken, holding chicken fingers as their new logo. But, uh, put, um, that, put that in the notes for the, the Photoshop. Yeah. Oh yes. my God! It's him, Stephen Bauer, looking concerned in the corner. Uh. <laughs> uh, okay. Speaking of uh, Brian De Palma, as we all know, Melanie Griffith's ex-husband, oh. Stephen Bauer, from uh, Raising Raising Kane. Anyway, <laughs> listen. Here's a great question for for everybody here. I thought about this a lot during this movie. Can you separate something being hot and something being sexy? And if so, how would you identify Basic Instinct? Megan, what do you think? Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I just like when you asked the question, I immediately thought of that Bruce uh, Willis erotic thriller, Color of Night, and how yes. that was not sexy. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, you Another can definitely movie. you can definitely separate them. Uh, I think I think in some way, again, this is a Sharon Stone vehicle and she nails both. 
Exactly. That's the that's the thing that's that I've been going back and forth with in my in my mind is she's like, successful. She's, Douglas, nah. Yeah, like she is she is extremely sexy. But is the movie sexy? I think it's more but, hot than it is sexy. Yeah, um, but she is. She is on. Oh, she's all of it. You know, she's all of it. Vanderbilt, I know you think about this twenty five hours out of the day. So, what do you think? <laughs> twenty five um, hours. If, I've only got. I, I've only got if one you, thing. If you could. Only got one thing to say about that. <laughs> he already you said, said it. it with the bumble search. Yeah, that's, that's right. True. That's so true. He said the whole thing. Rothman, what do you think? Is this movie hot or is it sexy? Or is she just the only real sexy element of the movie? You know, I, I think it's all. I, I think I, I keep look, thinking back to like the nightclub sequence. And there's a part of me that really, well, there's a big part of me that really wishes that like Douglas leaned in his bisexual tendencies because I feel like this movie is so much more interesting if ever, if, if everyone's on page with being sexually fluid. Um, and I think then you really get a, a really steamy, sexy movie. I think it's more, I think it is more hot. I think it's, it's, you know, you watch this and this feels like probably the best softcore porn that you've never, that's never really been able to kind of just premiere on Cinemax. I mean, it's even, it's, I mean, it's, it's more intense than a lot of softcore porn movies, to be honest with you. But like, I, you just—I uh, would it. say so. I think so. I mean, like, I, I, would I mean, agree. I've been watching it with Sammy last night. I'm just like, how the fuck do they do these sex scenes? Like, it's it's fucking crazy. Like how how in depth they get. But I, I think I think well, my, I think a lot of those scenes that we get now just casually on streamers. I think that's a director's cut. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm sure. I think some of that was cut down. I was going to say like, there's some scenes going between the legs, and I'm just like, I don't know how they did this. I really don't. I mean, in theaters uh, during that scene where they when they go home after the club, they just shake hands. Yeah. And say goodnight. I don't <laughs> know if you remember I, that. But, but, but I, I the think handshake the handshake of the century. <laughs> I, I think the biggest tell is just that Roxy interrog- likes to watch me shake hands. The interrogation sequence, like you feel everyone in that scene. Like she is yeah. so command. She is so in command. And this is like what, fifteen minutes, twenty minutes in the movie, and like she is so in command at that scene that like the feelings that you have, especially like just even like just Wayne Knight, his reaction is kill. It just kills me, and the fact that like Douglas keeps going back and forth through the water. There's just so much like like uh, anxious energy there that speaks to it being like a hot movie. Mm-hmm. That I feel like it. I can. I feel like it just like goes over. I feel in that sense it is like sexually fluid movie because like I feel like everyone's pretty much on the edge of their seat sexually in it. So I don't know. Maybe it does in that way. But I I go back to the idea that if Douglas was on board as much as Stone was, I feel like this movie is a little bit more of a a better package. But you know, all so many um, analogies with that last sentence. That is true. Yeah, you make. Um, yeah. I'm going to try to be as mature as humanly possible for the rest of this episode. I'm going to fail miserably. Check this out, everybody. Movie costs $15 million. Is that including the $3 million for the script? You know what? I don't think it is. No, it can't be. There's I think no the way. actual production budget was fifteen. dollars um, Even if it was. Let's, let's go ahead and say we'll add on our $3 million, $18 million. This movie in 1992 made $352 million worldwide. And crazy. It's which is basically crazy. like $700 million today. That's, can you imagine this type of movie getting the $700 I wish, million? Dollars? I, I wish there was something like that that would just blow up. Well, I'm waiting for Benedetta to come out and make a billion dollars at the box office. I'm sure. Um, just incredible thing about the money. Even back then, that's so much. Even looking at now. That that wow. number is so enormous compared to 
not just because of the pandemic, but even before that, like the box office numbers for a lot of these non franchise IP movies, you're not making $400 million unless it's like a get out or something, some anomaly in some ways. That that's what I'm and saying with like the sex icon thing though. Like, <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, like when was the last time we had a sex icon sell a movie like this? And you said it was 15 million to produce Justin. Yeah. And they made 15 million. It's first weekend. Yeah, I know. Made the budget back. back in three days when it opened on March twentieth, nineteen ninety two. Because they mentioned that in the EW article. Yes, they like, do. It was like, well, I don't think he has anything to worry about with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's gonna be fine. You guys, you know it's been nicer lately, and in Wisconsin, you never quite know when winter is gonna be in. But it's been nice for like four days in a row, and I'm like, if sunnier days are coming, it's time to fuel up. And so I'm going back to my factor meals that no prep, no mess. I want to hit my weight goals before it's time to hit that beach. You've got options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto. Factor has these fresh, never frozen meals, dietitian approved guys. And here's the big thing for me, keeping out of the kitchen as much as possible, two minutes and these meals are ready. So it doesn't matter how busy you are, you've always got time. So treat yourself. They have 35 different meals to pick from, 60 add-ons to choose every week. You're always gonna have new stuff to try. Have it whenever you want, it's effortless guys. So if you'd like to try it yourself, head to factormeals.com slash badmovies50 and use code badmovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BADMOVIES50 at FactorMeals.com slash BADMOVIES50 to get 50% off of your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. But check this out. There was a sequel that came out. Oh, Lord. Here we go. Uh, which, I, which I also <laughs> saw. Which I, You know what? I do my research, folks. And I thought, I, I'm very committed. And I thought 15 years ago, I'm not going to see this piece of trash. And I so, thought, I'm going to watch it now. And I thought that yesterday. And so Basic Instinct 2, a.k.a. in some, in some corners of the world, Basic Instinct 2, Risk Fiction. Hence my clever nickname at the oh, I, this I, episode. Oh, I grabbed it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it came out in 2006. And this is... Production hell for years and years. And it's, mm. it's a whole other fascinating uh, story. Uh, the movie's not very good. I will say, though, if you want to watch it, it's on HBO Max. I did not know this, but if you, so if you click on it, below it is the director's cut. You've got the option of watching either the, the theatrical or the director's cut. I watched the theatrical on accident. I don't think it made that much of a difference, folks. It's, <laughs> a, it's a bit of a mess. Wait a minute. Wait, wait. That movie went to theaters? Yeah, oh, I yeah. saw it opening no, night. Listen, I saw, I saw it in look, theaters opening night. The writer... And the director, like Michael Caton Jones, did this boy's life. He's done some good movies. The writer, one of the co-writers, had done some um, Chantel Ackerman movies. I mean, this wasn't like some straight-to-video cheapie by any means. Like they put money. Like the cast is stacked. You got David Thewlis, a young Hugh Dancy, um, obviously Sharon Stone, or an emerging. Um, it's funny, I've already forgotten the lead's name. David, uh, the governor. The governor um, from yeah. Walking Dead. Anyway, this Morrison, was a hot David potato Morrison. production, though, because oh, like yeah. everyone had their hands on this for a while. I, mm-hmm. I so I around this time was when I was like still running the Halloween website like an idiot. But um, I I remember like I would just refresh Dark Horizons news like every day. Like that's like what I would look and fucking every other month was some update about Basic Instinct Two. Like oh, it's coming. 
it's coming. Mm. We're still working on it. And like, oh my God, like there, there would be a really good book about the making of that. I don't know who would buy it, but like, cause the movie <laughs> certainly doesn't warrant that. But like the, the amount of people, the first book. I mean like fucking Cronenberg was attached to it at one point. Like there's just so many people that had their name that went across it. And I just remember like talking to my dad about it and he was just like, who the fuck wants a basic instinct too? Like, I mean, it because by nature, it negates the first one because then you know, like, oh, well, all right. Well, I mean, for, not to mention, like, I feel like throughout the whole movie, you pretty much know that Sharon Stone's the killer. But, like... Well, you, that's but, the thing about... Do you remember the ending of this movie, though? Well, they hint at the, you know, at the with, with the, you know, the ice pick and all. But, like... No, they I, hint that it's actually the, the doctor that did do all the killing and wasn't her. Eh, I, I mean... It's still stupid, don't get me wrong. Yeah, I, mean, I just... I don't believe it. That's the but, problem with the movie. It's, like, so open-ended. It's, it's, it's annoying. It's not cleverly left open for your interpretation. Like, it doesn't make any sense, the reasoning behind what's going on in the movie. I think Basic Instinct 2 is just such a good example of, like, Hollywood never realizing if they have a zeitgeist picture or if they actually have a franchise. And mm. it's like, this was a moment, and you weren't going to get it again. And they try it over and over again, and mostly in comedies. I feel like comedies, make, like, hit this pitfall all the time. We're like, oh, we'll, we'll get the magic again. You're not going to get the magic again. It was a I mean, let's be honest. If, if this was going to come out, they announced the production today, it would be like, oh, this is going to go straight to Amazon Prime. Totally. Like, there's no way this would have gone in the theaters. But I want to say, to say all, all that is to say this. That movie cost $70 million, <laughs> which is almost Unreal. five times the budget of the first one. And it only made $38 million worldwide. And I imagine a lot of that was probably Sharon Stone's payday for Basic Instinct 2. I imagine that's a big chunk of the budget. Yeah. Um, Pretty amazing. Uh, uh, Bomb line, I don't think we're going to be getting... Why am I saying this out loud? Because now we're going to get it. It's going to be called Basic Instinct. (laughs) And it's going to be like... Electric Boogaloo. Electric Boogaloo, <laughs> exactly. She wanted it, to make a third one. She did. I'm sure. And she still wants to one. Uh, wants to make. Um. One. Anyway, oh, one other note. I don't know if anybody noticed this, but uh, in the film, Nick and Gus go to a diner. What's the name of the diner? Max. Max. Uh, Matt Gerber, of course, a Halloweeny, who's not on this episode, <laughs> but I thought that was a nice little shout out for Mac. Hello, Mac. If you're listening to this. Instead of Ruth's Chris, it's Max Gerber. <laughs> okay. Oh, boy. Well, here we go. It is time to move on to our next section, in which we're going to discuss whether or not the people who perished in this film followed Randy's rules in Scream in a section that we call, What are the rules? <laughs> what are the rules? What are the rules? What are the rules? Mike, I always forget, what is that from, that music sound? Always Sunny. Okay, that's why I don't know. What's the bit? I don't even understand. No, it's what are the rules? Like, they're asking about, uh, like, what are the rules um, for, because the episode's called The Gang Turns Black. Um, Oh, I've actually, that's like one of five episodes I've seen. Yes, okay, I I know you're talking about. Very funny, very never. I can never remember what the hell that is from. Okay, there we go. Yeah, all right. Great, Great app. Now, yeah. there are multiple rules, but it's <laughs> we can really only talk about the first three because the other ones applied. To, we could talk about, you know what we could do? For the, for the rules from part two, let's see if I can address it for, for Basic Instinct 2 and see if it follows the sequel rules. <laughs> but let's do this first. So everybody's breaking rules left and right in this movie. Okay. So the first rule is you can never have sex. Oops. Uh, Johnny Boz. 
Yeah. Oh, by the way, side note, one of the all-time great fake sleazebag names of all mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Donnie Boz. Great name. Esther Haas is pretty good about coming up with sleazebag names. Oh, that's, I mean, that's a, that's, that just got rock and roll sleazebag all over it. Okay. Dr. Garner. We'll be talking about that later on. Roxy. Now, what's funny is that Gus complains about his lack of sex in his life, yet he still dies. But there's a reason for that. That's because rule number two, you can never drink or do drugs. Oh, no. Uh, Johnny Boss, again. (laughs) Johnny Boss was doomed. Our good friend, uh, George's boss from Seinfeld, uh, Nielsen, was drinking at the bar shortly before he was uh, shot in the alleyway. So he's drinking. Roxy. Uh, we see her doing drugs at the club. And Gus, Gus has had a couple drinks in this movie. Maybe even George does it himself. I don't know. It seemed like there's a lot of inebriation <laughs> going on with that character. Tough night at Max with Gus. Tough night at Max. Uh, yeah, really long night. Cowboy hats and everything. Seriously. That was um, a, uh, that's worth noting that that's a, that was a noted lesbian bar in L.A. That they Max shot bar? The, that they shot the, uh, the, the country western bar. Oh, oh, or not in L.A. Uh, uh, hold on. Bay Area, San Francisco? I think so. Vancouver, the, Canada. The exterior, the exterior <laughs> was not the same bar. Um, it, was a, it was a mock-up, but the interior was a San Francisco bar, which I will find out the oh. name of shortly. Well, while you do that, the last rule, never ever under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. Now, there is somebody in this movie kind of, who kind of says this without saying it. Does anybody remember who it is? The doctor? No. Uh, the Gus? Oh, yeah. 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 Gus, when he when he goes up to interview the former plasma, he basically says, stay here, Hoss. I'll, yeah, know, that's I'll, true. Yeah, you can't come up. There you go. Okay, oh. out of curiosity. Well, first of all, has everybody here seen Basic Instinct 2? Or, or is just Rothman and I the lucky ones? I, I did not get to that one. I, I watched either. I chose okay. to watch Flesh and Blood instead of watching you know Basic Instinct 2 yesterday. <laughs> so I feel you like were, that's the smarter choice because <laughs> I've seen Flesh and Blood. <laughs> I would rather see either Flesh and Blood movie than Basic Instinct 2 again. <laughs> um, all right, so Mike, real quick, read off the rules for the sequel, the second one. I'll see if they break the rules in the second movie. Mike, or me? All right. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay, so uh, the body count is always bigger. Yes, it's bigger in the second movie. Totally, yeah. I agree with this one, too. The death scenes are more elaborate, more blood, more gore. Hmm. I feel like they are because you get like so many fucking wild chase scenes and all this other shit that happens in two. Granted, it's been like 10, 15 years since I've seen it, but I, I think that it's this one is still more violent. Yeah. A lot of stuff in part two is the aftermath. You don't see the, the murders actually happen. Okay. Which is why it explains, oh, it's actually the doctor that no spoilers, but oh, what the fuck? Who cares? It's basically thing too. Anyway. And then the third uh, one, which technically doesn't appear in Scream 2, but it was in the trailer um, that they or that they they say is uh, never ever under any circumstances assume the killer is dead, which, to be honest, is the first one. <laughs> like, that's you right. Know, you really because think about you it. think it's Doctor Garner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think they really break that rule in the second one, but they break a lot of other rules like uh, quality filmmaking. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, number one rule, in my opinion. Yeah, okay. Cool. Anything else about the rules here? Well, we got third the, the Scream Three. Yeah, but that doesn't really apply to the first Basic Instinct, right? Because that's about. The rules we, of a trilogy. Can well, we just talk I, about Return of the Jedi then? Directed by Richard Marquand, who also directed Jagged Edge, written by Joe Esterhaz. Wow. Too much of a stretch. Oh, that's the end of a trilogy, too. So how about that? Jagged Edge 3. I think, I think at least one of these does work. 
Or What's two that? of them. So, like, in, the, in Scream 3, the three rules are you've got a killer who's going to be superhuman, stabbing him doesn't work, shooting him doesn't work. Obviously, that doesn't ca- count here. These two, I feel, do. Like, anyone, including the main character, can die. Which, I mean, Nick pretty much almost... I yeah, mean, but they, that's, that's the rule specifically, though, for a third movie. Yeah, it's a, it is for a third movie. That's true. Okay. Like, that so would have been the really rule in Scream. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, then forget it. It Dismiss makes about as much rules. sense as Randy yeah. leaving a videotape for them to watch in a trailer... I know that his sister drops off for him in the third stream movie. <laughs> it's about as believable uh, as that. Yeah. All right. The we, country you know, Western we, bar was Rawhide Two, which is now closed in, Boogaloo. in San Francisco. For okay. the record. Well, I will say if there is a link to this movie, and we've already kind of hinted at, we already discussed that kind of in the last section. But I do, I do think the meta pulpy nature of this movie is is a direct influence on Scream, and especially like Kevin Williamson. I, I think that they're. The self-awareness in this film is certainly more um, embellished in Scream. Something else, Mike, on that, it's like it's all based around she's a novelist. Yeah. And there, there's, there's the meta right there where she uses the book as her alibi. Totally. And Scream 3 does the same thing, you know, with the script. I mean, if you think yeah. about it. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of ties there, I, I feel. I, I feel like Scream leans more into the whodunit, whereas this movie just doesn't care about the mystery. Like, this movie's more like sex or mystery. Eh, let's go well, they sex. put the mystery up there, but, like, the mystery is you already know it. Yeah. Like, I mean, you, you, you're waiting for the twist. And he kind of does a similar thing Joe Estraz does with uh, Jagged Edge, where you're expecting there to be a twist, but then it's the most obvious answer. That's, yeah. that's basically all of the Joe Estras movies from the 90s we could also talk about. <laughs> oh, the, here's the big twist. And you're like, no, here's the, here's the, here's the real final twist. Speaking of, of books, Mike, did you know this, what the, the name of her latest novel is in Basic Instinct? I didn't. The original title of the movie, Love Hurts. Oh, that's... Duh. Yeah, okay. So it, crept, it crept its way into the film. It crept its way into the film. You want to know... You want a Halloween East connect there? Uh, so I love I love the song Love Hurts. Which uh, from Nazareth, Halloween, too. And from, from Halloween... Uh, uh, 2007's Halloween. Oh, that's right. The original yeah, one. So when uh, <laughs> Sherry Moon Zombie uh, strips to that song. That's um, right. When little Mikey Myers is at, at home killing his family. So... Little Mikey Myers and the giant Michael Myers uh, shape mask. Yeah. Just celebrated its 14th anniversary. <laughs> Happy birthday. You're almost old enough to drive with your parents, Halloween 2007. <laughs> I should have brought this up into production, but uh, where do we want to talk about the poster? Because I have some funny trivia there. Hey, better late than never. Uh, so the evocative poster for Basic Instinct was designed by two guys, Dan Chapman and Kevin Bachman. Did they do the same poster art for Jagged Edge? I did not see Jagged Edge. It's very similar to this. <laughs> but I have uh, now Chapman was born in L.A., but graduated from the Chicago Art Institute. And his company designed print campaigns for, I want you to listen to these, Aaron Brockovich. Great movie. Almost Famous. Great movie. Boys in the Hood. Great movie. All right. Road to Perdition. Booty Call. Star okay, Trek, well, here we go. Star Trek V, the one with the, uh, why they're putting seatbelts in. Maybe the worst the, Star Trek movie. In, in theaters <laughs> this summer. Speed, Con Air, perfect, The Rock, perfect. The Untouchables, American wow. Beauty, and... Drum roll, please. Friday the 13th, part eight, Jason Takes Manhattan. The New York poster, one? though. That got rejected? The, no, the, the yeah. theatrical one. It's still a good poster. I like that poster. I like the color design on it. Yeah. And then Kevin Bachman, his partner, uh, helped pioneer the use of the Macintosh computer in motion picture advertising. And he designed posters for The Big Lebowski. Love it. Coneheads. Face Off. Joe Esterhaz's Jade. 
That's a great poster, though. It is a great poster. Shit movie, a poster. but great poster. That's uh, not that bad. I like. Uh, I like. I like Linda Tarantino. It's a I bit like of a mess. You know, you know what? There's another great chase scene. Another great William Freakin chase scene. What, what, uh, Justin, what do you think William Freakin would say about Jade? You know, it was a piece of trash. I tried hard to make something out of. I was constantly fighting with Joe on the set. That's what that's what he would say about Love it. Jade. Well, speaking um, of William Friedkin, he also designed a poster for Leap of Faith, but not the William Friedkin movie, the Steve the Martin, Steve Martin movie. movie. Yes. <laughs> Somebody made a great. When I said that uh, Leap of Faith was the only Exorcist sequel, or whatever I said that I guess pissed off Twitter. Um, was uh, I, someone was like, you know, Steve Martin's not great in that movie or whatever. I, I, I did laugh at that. I thought that was a pretty good bit. You know, <laughs> you know. you'll have your head spinning. Uh. Uh, interesting stuff there. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is this will be this will be of note to the, our, our listeners is that somebody recently I just saw this. I can't remember who it was. Somebody has been doing uh, masks from every Friday Thirteenth movie, but the the color scheme on the masks matches the poster art. Oh, that's, oh, that's cool. cool. So like for Manhattan, it's got that kind of um, violet-looking skyline with the uh, cities underneath it. it it's pretty, I got to find it. It's pretty pretty cool. And even the masks and how they're damaged look like how they do in the movies. But uh, anyway, we've got to move on to our next section here. And unlike the screen movies, which mostly concentrate on two people, this is going to concentrate on one. It's a section that we call Sick Fox. It's a fun game, Sydney. See, we ask you a question. If you get it wrong, oh, God! die you get it right you die you're crazy both of you well we've talked a lot about her already but it's sharon stone as uh catherine Trammell. i was gonna make a great inside baseball literally joke and say oh this maybe this is based on former um tigers third baseman alan trammell <laughs> and it turns out it is the name was <laughs> taken from him by the way I swear to God. So I thought, wow, small world. You know, yeah. that's as likely as being inspired by Cleveland to make Basic Instinct. No shots to Cleveland, by the way. Beautiful city. But, you know, Cleveland Guardians and everything else going on. Good job. Okay. Not that great of a city. I went there once. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> kind of a show. Uh, please like, direct. I'm not on Twitter that much anymore. Sorry. Okay. I'm not, I'm not on Twitter that much anymore. So do not direct your ire at the Halloweenies account. Please direct yeah, it. Sorry. At, you know, I, I at Michael Rothman on Twitter. Had a bad time there. Not a great wedding. It was just not fun. I don't so. think I've ever partied in Cleveland. No. You know what? I, I'm the Should be noted that I'm a Miami Heat fan. So sorry if I don't really like your city as much, even though I used to love Mini Ramirez. So, um, Oh boy! Anyway, move on. Shots fired. Yeah, shots Cleveland fired. Here. Shots fired. Cleveland. Yeah. So feisty. Apologies, today. Megan. Apologies, any, any, you want to let you want to let it rip about Cleveland? <laughs> any issues? No, no. I think I think Michael's uh, handling himself well here. I'm yes. good. I'm good. I'm on my Personally, own. I think Cleveland rocks. Oh wow! Oh, very got, uh, good. Who's it? Who's the uh, uh, characters in that show? Mimi. Mimi. Mimi Drew. And friends. And friends. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, Sharon Stone's in, in this movie. And here's another excerpt I read from that Vanity Fair article. And she says, when I play the serial killer in Basic Instinct, I tapped into that rage. It was terrifying to look into the shadow self and to release it onto film for the world to see, to allow people to believe that I was, quote unquote, like that. Even more, to let myself know that I have or had darkness within. I can say that it was, and it's the most freeing thing I've ever done. Ultimately, it also let me know that I wasn't really the stabbing type. <laughs> letting myself uh, process that rage was magnificent, and I think letting others feel that release is a bit therapeutic for the audience. I know it's not just me. 
Uh, interesting take again. I gotta read this book that she wrote. I can't yeah, wait to read. Sounds this awesome. Yeah. Sharon sure. Stone's awesome. Remember when she wore a Gap sweater to the Oscars in 1996? Which was, was proof that Sharon deal. Stone could wear a Gap sweater to the Oscars and still blow away everybody else <laughs> on the red carpet. Oh, there's there's a big plot hole that we can kind of talk about here, and that's that. Even even Joe Estrauss admits the fact that all they would have to do in the beginning of the movie was do a DNA test, and he just yeah. totally dismissed that. He forgot about it. <laughs> well, I think that's something when but you talk right, about well. film noir and basic instinct is a noir, and a lot of that direct-to-video uh, erotic junk that came out in the 90s, like Night Eyes, anything with Andrew Stevens, uh, was you know based in noir, is that you have to have a tremendous suspension, suspension of Suspension of belief. Yeah, totally. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I never thought about work. watching the movie. It's only when you start to... It was kind of like how we were talking about Scream. If you like, once you start to poke holes in yeah. certain movies, <laughs> it's a sinking ship. Like you don't just and just watch it at face value. You know, listen to these amazing lines I wrote down that she's got in this movie. And I'm sure if you've got anything off the top of your head, and just the bluntness of it all. And they, I always love the reaction shot of the men that she's saying it to. Like, um, I wasn't dating him; I was fucking him. <laughs> just like, oh, uh, are you sorry he's dead? Yeah, I liked fucking him. Okay, yeah, excuse me. Uh, and then the best is, have you ever fucked on cocaine, Nick, <laughs> in the back of the car? These are great lines from Paul Estrauss, but she delivers them so convincingly, and you can see, like, she's saying it all with just a huge. Hey, if they're fucking on, on cocaine, they must not have done that much, but that's all I'll. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, the mixture of cocaine and Jack Daniels to me sounds like a very fascinating <laughs> combination of, to, to have things happen. We've wonderful, talked about how amazing she heart. is in this movie. I, I don't know. Does anybody else want to add something else? I mean, I think we've spoken. This this really is. I think she's, she's awesome. Not like, above the credits. There's she, a reason. Is, there's a reason this is a star making performance yeah. for her because she owns the whole movie and she commands every sequence uh, from the interrogation scene on. I actually. I just, oh, go for it, Megan. Sorry. I was just gonna say. I'll, all I'll add is it's not just her line delivery. It's the the way that she just stone cold stares them down. Yep. Yes. Like there is no blinking. She's like the eye contact is insane. And and she's waiting for a reaction that she knows she's gonna get, and that's total bewilderment because they've probably never been spoken to like that before about somebody with that much power. You know. So is her character um, a sociopath? So yeah. You know, that's the question, right? Is because in any of the scenes where you see her um, being emotional, like crying, is that part of the act? Totally. Yeah. Totally. Like, that's something that I, I actually do enjoy about this is that it is very. I would lean that's towards. That's open to interpretation, but it's not annoying to me. That's just kind of is this an act or is this. Does she genuinely have issues that she's never been able to work out? I think she might be genuine only because she doesn't kill Michael Douglas at the end of the movie. If there's anything to yeah. lead towards yeah, that. It, it at that cuts. moment. <laughs> she could be black widowing him, yeah. I know. Exactly, well, exactly. That's, that, that's a good uh, set to what I think is, uh, you know, I think that she's this total spider in a parasitic world. Like, mm. and like she's always casting the web. And, you know, I, I know that we talked a little bit about, like, the fact that a lot of people thought that she was a problematic, you know, it was problematic in the sense that, like, you know, she's a queer character who's ultimately the serial killer at the end. But I, I kind of agree with a lot of the critics that are out there that call her. Like, I think she's one of the most empowering like female roles like to ever put to screen. To be honest with you, I mean she's always in command. She's always yep. steps ahead of everyone, and it's 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 earned. You know, like I, I actually believe she's one upping other one. I don't really believe this is like plot armor. You know, like I, I think that like Stone is so great at like conjuring all the smoke and mirrors throughout this entire movie. 
that like when we were talking about her crying, we we're talking about the way that she even like manipulates, you know, Douglas into smoking again. You know, mm. the fact that he's like read, you know, the fact that he's leaning on stuff that she was saying, like she is always leading the way, which is why it is so perverse that she's not top billing. I get why she's not top billing, considering that Michael Douglas is the block blockbuster star at that point. You know, he's two time Oscar winner at that point. But I it's just I don't know. It's it is her role it is her performance. And I just think that. Man, it's just she's so fucking good in this movie. Like I she's the she's the reason why to watch this movie. She's the reason this movie is we're still even talking about this movie 30 something years later. So, um great character. Great character. I don't think we needed another one, but with it because I think that kind of derails the point of the character at that point, but great out. It's funny here. in the sequel they talk about Nick, but they don't say he ever got killed or anything. I was wondering about that. I, I can't it was remember. Like, I can't do this anymore. And they just kind of like pack up their box up their stuff and leave. I can't imagine the relationship ending like that, but it's kind of suggested that that's basically what happened in the second one. Well, I like the ending Ugh. suggestion of the fact that like when he's like, oh yeah, we'll have like, you know, little kids, you know, like kids and stuff like that. And that's when she's still kind of thinking like, oh, maybe I'm going to stab him. And then it's like, eh, maybe we'll just have the happy ever after uh, in, instead. And I like Let's that fuck commentary like rabbits, too. Yeah. Because it's just like, it's always the guy that's like, yeah, we'll have the family, you know, we'll have the family. And this is what, you know, this is what it means. It's just like, kind of like that little subtle commentary there at the end but uh, well uh, that fade to black and then fade right back to see the ice pick i know i can imagine people might not like that i love that i love it it works for this movie because this movie's so over the top and crazy you know what i mean if it was some like subtle thriller that might seem a little too bombastic but when it it fades to black for a split second and it comes right back and the music just it just works like gangbusters in this movie 100 percent what I'd like to say about her in this movie is like not only is the uh, the character in total control every scene that she's in, but you're also just drawn to the performance, the yeah. actor every time she's on the screen. Like that, it's, it's her scene, yeah. and this is and this is her first major, major, major role opposite somebody who had been doing it for twenty plus years. And I think that's a pretty incredible thing that you don't see a lot. The confidence, not only of of the uh, the character, but the the actor. She's amazing in this. Yeah, I mean the way that she talks about how she didn't, you know, the way that she played off a lot of uh, Douglas's, you know, rhythms and physicality speaks to her as a performer, you know? Like, she was able to kind of pivot in the moment and still own and still, you know, it's like, <laughs> I just think of it like a basketball game. You know, she was just always, kind of, you know, always being able to be on the de- the defense and the offense at the same time. And I... It was a real Kawhi Leonard. She really is a Kawhi Leonard here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here's a fun fact. And I believe it 100% because the house that she lives in, which is one of the most beautiful houses I will ever <laughs> see in my life, it's a real house. And it was, it's a, a Carmel by the Sea in California. And it was just put on the market. Ooh, Megan, let me go get how, it. <laughs> how, I, Megan, how much do you think this house costs? Billions. Wait, what, I, give me, give me, a, give me a number. Let's see her. Let's see. Oh, geez, I'm so bad at this. It's cal- like, especially from California, it's got to be obscene. Uh, ten. I don't ten. I know. I would have thought around that too. You said ten. Yeah, I would have thought around ten because I'm so bad at guessing the market of houses. Oh, I don't know. Yes. Prices right. When you, when rules. When you get to the millions, it might as well be a billion. I don't know anymore. Prices um, right okay. rules. If I say a dollar, do I win? <laughs> you would lose. You would lose in this case. Okay. Uh, Mike would lose in this case. So, Rothman, what do you think? I'm going to go with uh, Lean on King, 19. 
$52 million. Jesus Christ. Well, look at it, because you're not looking at the incredible-looking house. Like, that property, like, on the cliffs and everything, right by the the crashing yeah. beach and the path. And I think about that awesome fire pit that she's got in the backyard, too, which is pretty sweet. Yeah. <laughs> it's everything. Every, every time she goes to any place in that area, I'm like, oh, God, I got to figure this house <laughs> out. Um, pretty, pretty great-looking house. For a pretty great character, Catherine Trammell. Based on different spelling, but Alan Trammell of the Detroit Tigers from the 80s. Move on to our next category. We're going to talk about the rest of this, this nutty cast and a section that we call Everybody's a Suspect. He's got killer printed all over his forehead. Okay. Really? Why the cops let him go, smart guy? Because obviously they don't watch enough movies. This is standard horror movie stuff. Prom night revisited, man. Okay, let's kick it off with the sweater. Oh, yeah, uh, Detective Nick Curran. Uh, Michael Douglas is wearing a incredible sweater. Uh, I feel like this sweater looks like somebody who's had, like, somebody grabbing at a normal sweater and, like, yanking it down, <laughs> like, for months or maybe even years. And he's like, this is all I got. <laughs> he's got his detective clothes and his one casual sweater, and he's like, well, I'm going to a club. Like, you know what I'll do? I'll dress it up. No shirt underneath. It looks like it's summer or fall, you know, California. Let me put on this hot gray sweater to go to this late night dance club. It, <laughs> that it, sounds it, like a really good idea. It screams is, well, I'm in my late 40s. I'm going to a hip bar. I got to dress sexy. Like, that's what it <laughs> screams to me. And I feel like I've seen so many silver foxes uh, around Wrigleyville this is and a also Viagra downtown. kind of look, right? Exactly. Here. Oh, 100%. <laughs> yes. Downtown Chicago, you know, going to Roses or whatever the fucking bar is called. <laughs> the Lodge. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, he's going for it here. He was, what, 46, 47 when they made this movie. So he was probably great. Like, Full head of hair. He really does. Like that, that Michael Douglas hair. Yeah. Impressive. It's unreal. I, I got to say, with him in this film, I didn't realize this, but man, this really is his like first '90s movie. Because if you think about it, like Shining Through was a total like critical and commercial whatever. And that like, was no co-starring who? Oof, I don't remember. Um, Melanie Griffith. Oh, Melanie Griffith. How about that? Who um, was once married to? Oh, that uh, guy. That guy. That guy. Stephen Bauer <laughs> Stephen from Raising Kane. It's, it's all going back. It's all going back to the, the reference to Brian De Palma. But it's it's, it's almost like he he tried that. Didn't work, and he was like, "All right, well, let me lean back on my like Eddie, like my '80s pedigree, which was like you know adult thrillers. You know, you had like mm-hmm. Fatal Attraction, Fatal Wall Attraction. Street, Black Rain, War of the Roses, and I feel like this movie feels like a greatest hits of all that. And it's worth noting, I was reading this like he really didn't have like a real big hit until Fatal Attraction. Yeah, like as an actor, as a producer, he's fucking owning it. But I think Romancing you know, the Stone. Was oh, that's hit. right. That's Romancing right. Romancing the Stone's big, and that yeah. was a huge hit. Especially he did, for he produced um, he produced one flew of the cuckoo's nest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was an Oscar. I think China Syndrome was a hit too in the late seventies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and he was involved in Starman too, bringing uh-huh. that to the screen. Uh-huh. Great career for Mr. Douglas. Well, still going strong today. I want to say his the door that this opens for him after this is unbelievable. Like mm-hmm. the run that he has after this movie. I mean, Shining Through Part Two. <laughs> well, look, just read this. This is crazy. So he goes to Falling Down. Then he does Disclosure. Then he does the ghost in the darkness. She the- harassed me. <laughs> Want to get fucked? Um, he got a, he, he got the, that he got that long hair in the back movie. in that one too. Uh, yeah. He's looking good. It's 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 almost mullet. I mean, then he does the game. 
you know, or Ghost in the Darkness. Who hired you? Who hired you? Joel trailer pulls him, taking from my. I always brothers. think his brother's name is AJ, but it's not though, right? Because AJ is in the American President. That's right. Um, which he also did at this time. My you favorite, get, one of my favorite movies of all time. Perfect Murder, Wonder Boys, Traffic. Perfect I mean, Murder. That's a that's a good sexy thriller. It that's, is. Uh, talking about Hitchcock. That's a good yeah. movie. That's actually yeah. that, that twists the Hitchcock. I saw story that too. one. I saw that one at the show. So I really do. I do think that this is like the beginning of his real run. Like, I, I mean, you get make the argument it's the '80s also, but like, his Wall Street's huge. But like, man, this is the run where star it's- making turns. If you want, you could pretty much start. If really, if you start at Wall Street and go forward, because the only thing you're taking out is shining through. That's true. Yeah, but really, he had like a good 14, 15 year run there where he was just on top of the world. Yeah, you know? making any famous any favorite Michael Douglas movies that we're forgetting. No. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure, no, I'm, there probably is, but like, he, you know, you listed my favorite, so I'm good. Yeah. What I about just, Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps? Oh, Lord. <laughs> Speaking of sequels that nobody asked for. Well, yeah, um, no, I remember asking, like, I was so excited for that movie. I was like, I, I sent like a text thread or an email. I was like, all right, who's going to see Money Never Sleeps with me? No one responded. And I went alone, <laughs> like on a fucking Saturday matinee. And I was furious. I was like, no one wants to go see Wall Street too. I've been looking forward to this forever. I love Douglas. He's my my third favorite actor behind Tom Cruise and Leo. I I just I just fucking love this guy. Um, I will say, not my favorite movie of him though. In this, I think he's good. I just don't. I think he's so secondary. Oh no, no, no. I I mean, here's the great thing about this movie, and I still like this movie. It's so crazy and over the top. I I, I, like. Feels like everybody's living in. You know what feels like? I actually just kind of maybe adds a little bit of a positive note for it is it feels like people are living inside of Catherine Trammell's book. Yeah, that's true. Like everybody feels so unbelievable as a human being in this movie. That's funny. Cause I think in the sequel, people do feel more human, mm-hmm. but it doesn't work at all for these movies. I think you need that added element and we'll, we'll talk about um, some of the characters as we go on, but yeah, I don't know how, and I don't know if this is a failing. This kind of goes back to what we said at the beginning. I don't know if this is a failing of Esther House's script or what. But it's so nonstop, but it doesn't feel natural. Like, it'll be, he's going to yell at Catherine saying, I don't believe you. I think you're a killer. And he'll go somewhere else downtown. And the next thing you know, he's back at her, his, her house. Mm-hmm. And then he's back in somebody's, he's back at the station. And he's at his house and she's there. I'm like, is, has a week gone by or has three hours gone by? The it's like this really strange... Is- mess it kind of becomes a real mess at the end i think mm-hmm. can, can we also talk about the subtle details that just adds to that kind of disorientation you know like how many times uh do they have dance class across from his apartment it's like day <laughs> or night they are dancing across the street and he's got the voyeuristic view you know he got that apartment for that reason <laughs> and they're just non-stop there dancing the way that this movie is ba- is comes across i'm, I'm surprised it's not him Megan, like with the telescope, like a cigarette and Jack Daniels looking through it, looking at this dance class going on. Like, he doesn't need to. It's clear it's right as there. day. It is insane how like crystal clear the, those dancers are. It's like, here you go. It would be funny if Joe Esterhouse Esterhaus got criticized for like time inconsistencies. He's like, well, I put the dance class there because clearly that would clearly be at nighttime. Yeah, at 5 p.m. <laughs> after work. You know, people being dropped off after work and they're going to dance class. Um, anyway, it's just such a... It's, so it's hard to like pin down like a strong performance when the true magnet is Catherine Tremell and everybody else is just flying around, inevitably ending up in her 
force field or whatever you want to call it. It feels like Douglas is like leaning on like the cadence of a pixie song throughout this entire movie. It's just like, yeah, you know, uh, maybe you want to go over here. Come on. Like it just (laughs) goes loud and soft, like at most random intervals. Like, and there's so many lines where it's like, I don't know if he's just like putting the adrenaline in there to kind of give him that machismo or whatever, but it's just so at random intervals. Like it's so weird. I do appreciate this though, is that they didn't have, if some weird version of this movie were to come out today, first of all, it'd be awful. Second of all, it would have him as like this real straight-laced cop who gets corrupted. In this movie, no, no. This guy's an asshole. Oh, totally. You know what I mean? He just happens to also meet somebody else who can really fuck with him. But he's an asshole. They don't pretend like he's anything other than that. He treats Beth like absolute trash the entire movie. It's unbelievable. (laughs) He has no respect for his coworkers. He doesn't respect anybody in the movie. He doesn't respect himself. It's just funny. And, And he still wins in the end, basically, you know, unless... She kills him, but who knows? It's just a wild, wild performance. In my mind, that's what happens. I think she she eventually kills him, right? Yeah. I mean, once she's done with him, that's it for him. I feel like they don't make it clear in the second one because she's hoping that he'll show up for the third one. You know? Uh-huh. And who knows? Honestly, at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if if he did return or something like that. With the same sweater. The same <laughs> sweater. Oh, we got to get the IP and that sweater. Nothing better than the sweater. Doing their dance moves like this. Like, you um. know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it really does feel like a club from there or something. The uh, same score, it sounds like, too. Yeah, it has its time. Uh, do you know what movie is he falls asleep to when he gets the call that uh, Nelson's been shot and killed? Hellraiser 2! That's right. Yeah. Hellraiser is there. Um, but it's listed as Hellraiser, not Hellraiser 2, in the credits. But that is definitely well, Hellraiser 2. Yeah. Yeah. The hallway. No, I think that is Hellraiser. Isn't it? Because I think that's no, when she briefly goes to the hospital and then she gets chased by the demon. And then she escapes from the hospital to go back to her house. Isn't that Hellraiser, though? Hellraiser no, the second when she's at the hospital the entire time. Yeah. But when she sees Pendant for the first time in the movie. I don't think she was ever movie, in the hospital in the first movie. She stayed with her boyfriend. No, no. In the first movie, she is in the hospital when Wait, she really? encounters Pendant for the first time. Yeah. God, I, those yeah. two get so intertwined because I know, Shutter plays them like nonstop. So yeah. they do, and also the fact that they take place literally the second one takes place right away. Yeah, and it was also released right away. Also confuses me because now I'm looking. I'm going to look at my wall, doing like a Charlie, and it's always Sunny trying to figure out like, hey, wait, did this scene happen there? Or did it happen later on? People yeah. at home are screaming at us like it's part one, it's part two. Regardless, the credits list hell, part hell one. I'm playing. convinced it's part two. All right, well, we're going to have to start getting some lawsuits filed here. <laughs> Dude, who, who truly needs to get the credit for, for part two for the Maybe re-release. it's part three. Maybe it's Bloodline. <laughs> or, uh, no. No, God. <laughs> or, yeah. They stole footage before it came out or something. Yeah. Uh, okay, we're going to move on to our next character. This is an actor by the name of George DeZunza who had a hell of a late 70s because he was in both the Salem's Lot, Toby Hooper adaptation, very intense performance. I think he's a combination of two roles from the book, but he plays the the husband who finds out his wife's having an affair and the deer hunter really good in that. Um, he's the friend that doesn't go to war. Great movie. These are all very sad movies. Uh, he is on one in this movie though. I don't think he does. This is another instance of everybody up to like 110 <laughs> on the let's go for it scale. Detective Gus Moran, another great name. Um, my big note for Gus is that, he goes on the world's slowest elevator. Yes, Jesus at the end of this movie. Christ. 
Like, I thought he was going to the 30th floor. <laughs> it was like, it was, and then I, Michael Douglas figures out what's going on before he gets to the fourth floor 25 minutes later. I mean, oh, it's yeah. one of these slow elevators. What do you think about George DeZunza and this particular movie as, as Gus Moran Megan? What, what, what was it besides the cowboy hats? What did you take away from <laughs> besides this? Besides the cowboy hats, he is the uh, best drunk stumbler. Yeah. He's also got some solid advice. I feel like there's a couple characters that are smarter than they're given credit for, and mm. he's one of them, I think. He, I'm always curious about his backstory. Like, how did he end up being a cop here? <laughs> like, what was the, the, the journey? Because obviously, I'm sure he was from somewhere like in Texas or something like that. He like, just drew a name out of a number out of a hat. I mean, I feel like, like a lot of this, the people that we do see in the in the precinct, it's like Wayne Knight. I'm not buying this. No, yeah. I, character actor heaven in this movie, but uh, yes. that's definitely an example of it. Uh, what do you think, Rothman, about about good old Haas Haas himself, Gus? I, I always love a good uh, good partner in a movie, and I feel like he's a good partner in the sense that like. You know, he still believes him, and I like when he's just like, "Well, I'm in the minority here." You know, at the, you know when they they get to the first crime scene, because if I'm a cop in the precinct, I'm like, "Oh yeah, it's that fucking hothead over there for sure." <laughs> like it's hundred percent him. Like, but he still stays in his corner, so he's good. I will say though, one of the things that, that caught my eye is the fact that um, George orders from Pizza Hut. Uh, he's a he's a Pizza <laughs> yeah. Hut fan, and I and I wanted to ask the corporate guy. It, he's a corporate guy. Is this the best era for Pizza Hut? It might be the it, best pizza in San Francisco, yeah. too. This <laughs> is circa the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles tour. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a good era. I yeah. wonder what he had on his pizza, because we don't really get to see it that much. But um, This guy, I'll tell you what, it, wasn't, it was probably just something like... Pepperoni. Those guys are pepperoni guys. Yeah. Pepperoni straight up? Yes, pepperoni, nothing else. What about Meat Lover's Pizza? Like, that, that could work. I um, love Meat Lover's Pizza. I feel like meat lovers would definitely apply to Basic Instinct. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't make one of his jokes. Like, hey, this one over here likes the meat lovers. Um, <laughs> shocked that joke did not come out. But what's this? he does it one line? It's like she's got a magna cum laude and fucking or something like yeah, that. Yeah, oh, at one Lord. point. Ma- that, just, you know, you're distracted by that magna cum laude pussy. That's yeah. what it is. That's what it is. <laughs> do you, do you oh think God. Oh, sorry. Go for it, Megan. <laughs> I was just going to say, I have to applaud the kind of uh, Pizza Hut sponsorship uh, product placement in movies. I mean, we had the the Thai horror movie, The Pool, with the alligator that is mm-hmm. literally sponsored by Pizza Hut. And then you've got Basic Instinct. So I, I kind of applaud where they're allowed to put their branding. <laughs> and around the same time, of course, Wayne's World. Yeah. Yeah. What's, well, what's, um, I, I bowed to no sponsor in the line. I was a little disappointed that, like, clearly Gus kept his uh, his vinyl Beauty and the Beast puppet because, like, I didn't see it on top of the pizza, but you know <laughs> that, like, at that time they were giving them to, like, the, you know, the people that ordered the large pizzas. So maybe he got cuppy or, like, you know, chippy. Um, that, that's the I, I was it's, like, it's in the car. He's not sharing that with his partner. Yeah. He's like, uh, he's like, I'm, I'm keeping this is for Gus. You it know? feels like Gus <laughs> Gus stole his estranged family his 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 estranged son's book it awards from school yeah. and cashed in and got that 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 uh, pepperoni pizza. Nice, <laughs> like, love it. Uh, um, listen, we all here love pizza just as much as we love George DeZunza's Detective Gus Moran. Which we Let's should, talk about. But we a should character. mention that he was in the streets of San Francisco with Michael, oh, with Douglas, Michael Douglas in 1977 and appeared uh, in the Happy Hooker from 1975 as Chet. And he was on Crime Story, Michael Mann's Crime uh-huh. Story, to throw back to our Manhunter episode. He was Makes also sense. on the short-lived NBC sitcom Jesse with Christina Applegate. I do remember that. 
Um, he had a hell of a 1977-78 run. Jesus yeah. Christ, that a 77-78 run for Mr. Dezunza. Let's talk about a character. I'm going to go out of my way and say this this character, uh, and this actor has been good in other movies. It's nothing really to do with the actor, okay? Dr. Beth Garner, uh, played by uh, Jeanine, uh, Jean Triplehorn. Uh, I can't believe... She's evil. She's brilliant. <laughs> I can't believe I mean, this uh, was such an early role for her. I thought she'd been around forever role. by this time. Oh, yeah. She had, the first thing I saw her in, I think she was in a Ben Stiller sketch. Yeah, because they, they were dating at the time. Yeah, and then she did the firm right after this, right? Yeah, tough. I mean, what what a hell of a fucking debut, though. Yeah, I mean, man, you, and think about this though: Stone Stone Cold Fox, but you're up against Sharon Stone. I know. And hey, Sliver, like no one's ever gonna remember you. You know. Well, that's not. I just think this character sucks. Am I, am I being too hyperbolic? I liked her. Like, I, I, like, here's the thing. I don't, I don't know if Joe Estraus is trying to make it out that <laughs> she is, um, that she has some issues to make, to lay the groundwork that maybe she's the killer. Or is yeah. it just that this character is wholly unbelievable? I, I just don't buy this character at all. And I feel like I the interplay think, yeah. is so bizarre. I, I don't know. It just does This is the one character for me that doesn't really fit in with the rest of the, the cast of the movie. I think she's sloppily handled she, yeah. her performance. I mean, I like her, but yeah, I don't think they do a good job of, I mean, they go from zero to she's a suspect. Yeah, they really do. super fast. And she's wearing that like, Oh, she's wearing that really bad, obviously blonde wig from the same photo shoot of the other driver's license. And yeah. The big reveal. I don't know. I, I just, I and laughed does, a lot of stuff. It does. It does her no favors to, it's like the whole big moment where he thinks she's got a gun and it's a giant Bart Simpson. Like that doesn't do her any favors. <laughs> no. Like, why is she pulling this out right now? Um, and of course there's a, uh, I don't know. Well, let's see. I'm like, your, your thought Vanderbilt. What do you think about the, the character of Dr. Beth Garner in this movie? I mean, you know, I think that a service is that she's just, Far less memorable than Sharon Stone's character or Michael Douglas's character. True, I mean, yeah. In this, but I don't. She's necessary. It's a good performance. I can, you know, smoke show everything I like in an erotic thriller. Yeah, I, I agree. I think she's 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 a good uh, supporting smoke uh, show. <laughs> supporting <laughs> in, smoke in, show. In, for I'm imagining like the sick. Academy Awards. This year would have been. <laughs> <laughs> who would have been like the best supporting actor from ninety two? Oh, I was like ninety two. Who who knows? And the winner point. for best smoke show. The nominees are. Um, but I mean, I do wish they oh, would have gone. I, I wish they would have gone into a little bit more. Her, I mean, it's so on the nose that she's his therapist who is mm. so yes. so broken mentally over this dude yep. with poor sweater <laughs> style. So it's like, can we go into that, too? I mean, you've got this very complex character that you kind of don't do anything with, except for when you need her to be the distraction and the red herring. So, yeah, I I think there's so much potential there. And yeah, and they're clumsily plotted, too. And it's like, you know, you were talking about her, like, her being ramshackled into, like, this, you know, suspect. And they kind of almost, like, do this thing in the early in the beginning where it's just like, you know, he can't get her off. Right. And so you're supposed to assume like later on when it's like, oh, she was obsessed with, you know, Catherine the whole time. So, you know, she really only had a heart for Catherine or whatever. And it's just such a 
like that's really the only characteristic that you get with their relationship is that like they struggle sexually and that which is why you know he acts so goddamn violently in, in the beginning of the movie uh which by the way if i'm gene triplehorn and it's like all right well this is my first feature film in hollywood uh all right let's uh, assuming that they shot this sequentially your first big role on screen <laughs> is to just be like in that scene with michael douglas like I mean, my well, that's no, that was another controversial scene that people yeah. uh, to, to, took issue with before it even came out. They had heard about that. And I think they said that that, that shot, that it was actually, once again, Paul Verhoeven, this tricky guy over here. Yeah, that was a rehearsal. That wasn't even actually like action. That was just the camera was rolling and he liked, I guess, the take that was taken there. But uh, oof, interesting scene to say the, the, the very least of the very least. I'm I not sure think, what's going on there. I think we needed more with the two of them, if we were to yes. believe that they were like some sort of pseudo couple, yeah. like yeah. even just like a, a post coitus smoke scene, more, more of those a little bit would have just been a, more than what we get, which yeah. if anything, well, feels like yeah, plot armor. Any, any of the, po- any of the po- post coital is, we're very, we're very scientific people here. It's like, each other. you've never been like that before. Why you weren't making love to me. It's like these. Yeah. Some of these the lines whole, are just her, so plain Jane. I her, don't know. Death final line feels so unearned. Oh, absolutely. What is yeah. it? I loved you or something like that? What yeah. did you say? Yeah, I love you. Yeah. I like, loved you. Do, do you though? Why? Why do you love him? He's yeah. a shit. Well, I think part of the point of this movie is that everybody's shitty. Oh, everybody's we, we've nuts. established that. Yeah. Everybody in this movie sucks. I mean, let's be honest. It's just a So very... if you were to establish more of that relationship, like they did have something, you know, real, it would uh, undercut that. No, but you, I mean, no, look. No, but she's clearly like something, the, the doctor who's a little bit psychotic, like I would love for them to play that up a little bit yeah. more. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah. But all we know is that that line though, when she screams, she's evil, she's brilliant. Here's the thing about this movie, and this is no shots fired, because I've, I've seen many, I've seen a lot of showgirls over the years, and I'm talking about the movie, folks. Um, and I, I still feel like if you put Basic Instinct and Showgirls is a double bill, you would get just as many unintentional laughs during Basic Instinct as you would during Showgirls. And I don't think that's a negative necessarily, but there are a lot of like laugh outlines well, you know, in this movie but, and actions in this movie that you're kind of just, I, don't you know, I, I would be laughing my ass off. You say unintentional, but because of the trickiness of both Esterhouse and Verhoeven, I can't tell if that's necessarily un- unintentional though. I think it might be intentional based on their works by Verhoeven. But I don't think Joe Esterhouse has a great sense of humor. I don't. I don't think he does. So I, I think that some of the stuff is supposed to be like really cool and edgy, some of the dialogue also... or provocative, but it just comes off as something like uh, I'm not gonna make any comps to the room. But just some of the stuff think... is just is just so goofy. I don't know? think Michael Douglas is the type that would intentionally be putting humor in there. Oh either. no, not at no. all. Yeah. I think he was trying to make a straight up film noir throwback that gets buried in some of these these goofy decisions and some of the actions that the characters have to do and some of the dialogue is just absurd it's 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 just been like done to death too over the years too i don't think it did any favors but um i think if there's anything else to say before we move on to our next character i don't think we do <laughs> no uh, ser- I'll, I'll oh yeah that roxy lalani sorrell she uh no. got her first start in neon maniacs yes as natalie um do you know speaking of paul verhoven you know who she was married to rooker hours miguel ferrer oh yeah oh yeah 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 i did know that robocop zone 
Miguel Ferrer. Interesting character. Um, very sexy character. Sexy Roxy. Roxanne Hardy really, is her I, full name, by you, the way. You have to be the third hottest person. Or the third, third hottest woman challenge. in this movie, you know? Like. It's, it's, it's a challenge, but there's a lot of attractive people in this movie, to say the very least. This isn't really, this also isn't really a character, right? This is more just of another device. This is mm-hmm. uh, somebody that Catherine, you know, this is, this is the titillating 1982. Ooh, they're kissing, you know? This is, a, this is no big deal today, probably. Well, when but, did, uh, um, when did uh, Mariel Hemingway kiss Roseanne? On television, was it Mariel? Ninety-four, Mariel. Ninety-four. Well, someone check Roseanne Wiki. I got this right now <laughs> to, to find we're out. All, we're all like looking at the, the March sky 1st, like hmm. March first, nineteen ninety-four. Yeah, nailed it. Good job, nailed it. Oh. Awesome. Um, you know, Roxy tries to. You know, she she runs him over with the car. Here's a here's a good interesting question. Do you think that she did that on her own accord, or do you think that? that Catherine instructed her to run him down or to try to run him down. That's kind of open. Uh, that's a good right? question. And I guess they never really kind of reveal that in the movie. I kind of feel like she did it on her own accord through a little bit manipulation. I mean, like yeah. they really do kind of hint at all strongly uh, show a jealousy streak. So I think mm-hmm. that that's something that clearly is fostered. Yeah. Catherine um, knows how to play that for her own advantage. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. why they let, that's why she like, you know, had that full display for her. These were all the faults, by the way, of the second one where she just literally just says everything. <laughs> and it's like, why are you revealing all this stuff? No, Roxy, Roxy reminds me of like the old man in uh, let the right one in where she was oh. the, the object of the, the affection, the center of the world for this one person at one point and now yeah. is not. And they've moved on to another person that can serve them. And and that's kind of the tragedy I see with them. I mean, like for me, my favorite moments with Roxy are those with Douglas, like their interplay there. Like when I, when you want to talk about like unintentionally <laughs> funny or like just oh, yeah. smutty, it is just great. I mean, I was like cackling during some of their like interplay together. Cause like Douglas is such a fucking cocky asshole during that. And it's just so funny watching this swagger and knowing that he's also being played. Like it, it's like this great sort of, um, foreshadowing of his own emasculation as he's trying to be this like pompous prick or whatever. I, I just love those scenes. Well, that's what I'm talking about. That bathroom scene is so funny to me. Yeah. Um, and then just like, if you don't leave her alone, I'll kill you. It's yeah. just, we got it. We know it, Roxy. You're, you're jealous. Uh, next character. I, this is the most stereotypical Lieutenant I've seen in a 1990s movie. And that is uh, Dennis Arndt as Lieutenant Philip Walker. My note for him is just stereotypical cop boss that shouts at the lead cop. That's all I've got. Nailed it. Well, anything given, else? Well, given his his uh, his credits, he's been Captain Frank Solis in Metro, probably of Eddie Murphy's last great movie of uh, the nineties. Great um, movie. I never even saw it. I like Metro. Metro's good. Yeah, um, I never saw. I never. Uh, I wanted to, and then just kind of missed it. San Francisco movie. Michael Wincott is the is the villain. The great Michael Wincott is the villain. He uh, he plays Sergeant Howard, and I feel like the <laughs> underrated uh, 2003 SWAT, which I liked a lot. Um, I will. I I don't think I'll ever see it. Based uh, off the television show, I thought that was so strange that it was based off the television. Show, but they never really not that anybody remembers fucking SWAT, so they never really uh-huh. mentioned it in most of their marketing. They use the, the theme song though, so which is cool. Sure do. Um, but uh, yeah, so he's he clearly leaned into the. Um, everyone's taking my orders. A true character um, actor when you just literally play the same character in every movie. 
Hey, man, what pay, I, pays the bills? The, I think the only person who might beat him as far as the stereotypical cop is Frank McRae, the captain from 48 Hours and another mm. 48 Hours, because then he parodies his own role in Last Action Hero. Yeah, he does. You're right. That actor passed that. away too. Yes, I think, he did. A few years ago. He's great. Great character also, actor. Also, the go-to uh, for uh, Donner's films that it was his pal that was in like every movie. Um, who also plays the you know the chief in the Lethal Weapons? Um, he's been I, in like I every... kept thinking of that comp, that that guy who's been in every single Richard Donner movie ever made, yeah. who basically was only in Richard Donner movies. By the way, that actor, yeah, which is funny because <laughs> there's a good character actor. Yeah, he comes into the hospital for your favorite scene of uh, Lethal Weapon Four. We're family. Yeah. Okay, we gotta move on. Speaking of non-family members, Bruce A. Young, who plays Andrews, he is ultimately the one that helps. Nick find out about Beth's pseudonym. He lets him use the computer at the office. Like, I shouldn't let you use this, the actor. Another, another that guy. Yeah, he shows Risky up. Business, Color of Money, Jurassic Park 3. Thief. He's a mechanic thief. in Thief. Early role in Thief, yeah. yeah. A lot of TV over the years. Not, I don't know how much more we can say about Andrews, the character, right? Let's, can we move on? He's a Will Met guy. Ah. There you go, folks. We, we got there. Okay, um... <laughs> Next character, and this is a character actor I've got time for, though. Chelsea Ross, Captain Talcott, who's basically looking out for the governor and any potential scandals that the Boz murder could produce. Uh, by the way, a, a subplot that was abandoned after about 20 minutes. <laughs> that yeah. subplot, totally abandoned after 20 minutes. Um, this, this guy, Major League. Delivers one of my favorite lines of all time, up your butt, Joe Boo. Up. Your, oh, your butt, Joe Boo from Major and, League. And of course, then the second, hey, bartender, Joe Boo needs a refill. <laughs> which, which is funny because he's one of the only uh, main lineup guys that doesn't even get mentioned or referenced in the second yeah. movie. Like, they just totally write his character off. Well, he's, he's probably retired because, at that point. He's, but he's also, 50 years old. Yeah. Well, he probably also saw the project and he was like, uh, no thanks. PG, he's like, PG? Yeah. No, I'll be, doing this R, I'll be doing this X-rated basic instinct. Thank you very much. Yeah, what a bullshit sequel. He was um, also... In, do you remember him from Tales from the Crypt? He was in a really good Tales from the Crypt episode with Patricia Arquette. Oh, uh, the Scarecrow. Scarecrow one. Yep, that's the one. And I think I think Tom Holland might have directed that one, as a matter of fact. Hmm. The great Tom Holland. Not Spider-Man Tom Holland, the director Tom Holland. It's called Fourth Sided Triangle. Really unsettling. Yeah. Um, it's got to be on YouTube, right? They're all just kind of floating out there on YouTube. I think Check I it out. They're, they're not on the HBO Max for some have, reason. I think oh, I have sure a couple aren't. episodes on my Plex. Of Tales from the Crypt, actually. Oh. I don't oh, know I how many, though. Look into that. Love Tales from the Crypt. Directed by Tom Holland. Do something. Yes, four-sided track. Directed by Tom Holland. There you go. Yeah, really good episode. He's also in um, one of the most uh, uncomfortable movies to watch. Uh, I mentioned Sam Raimi before, but he's in A Simple Plan. Uh, yep, Simple Plan. Not a fun watch. Great movie, though. Great movie. Very sympathetic in that movie, though, from what I remember. Yeah. Okay. Next character. Here's somebody. Interesting casting. And I feel like this is deliberate. Uh, this is uh, Dorothy Malone who plays Hazel, Hazel Dopkins. Now, Hazel Dopkins is the character who Catherine is fascinated with and does a lot of research on because she killed her family years and years earlier. She killed her husband and children. She was a big RKO studio star back in the 40s. Dorothy Malone was. She was in a lot of minor roles. Not Steve Miner. <laughs> but she but is minor in roles. the terrific 1981's The Being one of my favorite uh, Midnight Monster movies from Jackie Kong. Oh, Jackie Kong did that. Yeah. Oh. Produced by Bill Osco, who did a lot of uh, 
He did one of the first big uh, major release porno films, Mona the Teenage Nymph. He later worked with Richard Jewell, I believe. And they formed Jewel Osco. <laughs> Jules, Jules Osco. Oh, excuse me. Uh, but she was in The Big Sleep with uh, Bogey. I believe Humphrey Bogart was in that from my memory serves me. It's been a while. <laughs> yes, he was. She Jewel. did. She actually won an Academy Award for Written on the Wind. And she was on Peyton Place for a number of years. So she was a, 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 a big deal there. I think it's good casting because she kind of was the quote-unquote blonde bombshell of her era too. Smart casting there. Um, the only the line I remember of her the saying... Torch. The passing of the torch. Passing of the torch. The only line I can remember her saying is, oh, so you're a shooter. That's all I got. <laughs> Why wasn't that your nickname in the beginning? Shooter. Oh, you know, I'm just going to read you the entire intro and I'll do the best one. <laughs> Justin Shooter Gerber. Just right there. It's just sitting there. Oh, uh, speaking of Shooter, um, the detective or the doctor in Basic Instinct 2 does pull up a copy of uh, Catherine Trammell's Shooter. Oh. Oh. Let's make its way into the... It was published. Hmm. Maybe Mike, maybe uh, Nick read it and said, this is trash. This isn't trash. me. And then, then they broke up. They might have, you know? Okay. Maybe, maybe he's the same character as he is in Falling Down. Like, they break up and... Um, <laughs> Throws on some glasses. He gets and, fucking angry and just loses his mind. Yeah. Um, you mess with him. Okay, we don't have to really discuss the characters, but listen to these character actors that I can same. run off here. They aren't even really credited. The cop in the filing department near the end of the movie, um, of course, is the uncle from Curse of Michael Myers. <laughs> the linkage there, yeah. And, and also Michael. memorably in a Higher Learning, the cop who uh, is trying to stop Michael Rappaport's character from committing suicide, and he keeps saying, you can still be an engineer, you can still be an engineer. He's um, also in uh, Seinfeld. Who's he in Seinfeld? He's one of the cops in Seinfeld. Oh, a lot of Seinfeld, a lot of Seinfeld oh, connections oh, lot, well, Speaking of Seinfeld connections... Uh, I think uh, you mentioned him earlier, Megan. Wayne Knight is John Carelli. Great name, first of all. This actually got him the role in Jurassic Park. Crazy. Um, kind of like a slimy type character, I guess. It makes, it makes sense. He kind of vanishes in this movie, though, right? Like, it just, you know. Yeah, his, his, he's, he's in that interrogation scene that's like, okay, I'm going to go take this and the subplot about the governor not wanting to get mixed up <laughs> in scandal. You know, you know what's like, funny what? about that, though? That plot of a, a government official trying to keep a murder quiet heavily figures into Jade. But I do wonder mm-hmm. how much of maybe original drafts of Basic Instinct made it into his Jade oh, movie. If you look at Jade, Jagged Edge, and Basic Instinct, like, Esther House is a master of self-plagiarization. Oh, yes. And I, and I don't doubt it for a second. I have not seen Jagged Edge in a long time, although I know the ending. And Anyway. Well, maybe, it's like, uh, maybe it's like Schrader's trilogy, you know, well, that he has. And it's like... It. <laughs> Schrader's... It's a Coronado trilogy. You know, Wayne, yeah. Wayne Knight is so good and so sweaty in this, mm. in his small role. And they and, play that up in, remember the Seinfeld episode where he's, <laughs> he's doing the interrogation, but he forgets because, and the lamp is on him while he's asking the questions yeah. to Jerry, who's like just drinking a soda or whatever. Speaking of Seinfeld, though, Lieutenant oh. Marty Nielsen who gets killed. Nelson, uh, played well, by the great late, the late great Daniel yeah. Von Bargen, who was also in... He's terrific. Uh, Lord, of, Lord of Illusions. And Super the Troopers. And the faculty. Oh, he's great in Super Troopers. He's but... really good in Super Troopers. Yeah. It's like. Really, I, we, our friend group, our, we've got a text thread that we always do the um, Coco the Monkey bit <laughs> from Seinfeld. Um, it's very, very funny. Anyway, he uh, kind of shows bargain. up. He's, a real, he's another real jerk in this movie. You know, he's corrupt, maybe corrupt uh, internal affairs guy. I do love killed. when he antagonizes Michael Douglas. In the bar, that's a great scene. It's a good uh, three minutes that gets. <laughs> it's very memorable, though. Speaking of IA officers, 
Skinner from X-Files, Mitch Pelosi, yeah. showing yeah. up in this movie. This is like, what, a year before he gets the X-Files role? What's funny is this is like two or three years after he had this huge role in Shocker. Yeah. And already the movie was such a bomb. He's just doing like uh, sixth AD in a Basic Instinct hey, movie. Which real quick, round, round, round Robin, Shocker, yay or nay? I go yay. I go nay. I've tried several times. Megan? Yay. You're a yay? Rothman? I'm with you, Gerber. Can't do uh, it. Nay. I love Can't that era. <laughs> yeah. It's... I, 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 a good soundtrack. Great soundtrack. Good soundtrack. Um, it's just a better, bit of better a... Better Spider-Man It's all over the villain. place. Better Spider-Man villain. Oh. Electro in Shocker. Wes Craven yeah. Shocker. Yeah, you know. Um, um, okay. Let's keep the character actors going here. Even Tobolowski shows uh, up. Now that's a that guy, if I've ever seen one. The, the old timer. <laughs> Seinfeld Lamont. also. Another Seinfeld connection. Yeah, where was yeah, he at Seinfeld? I, I knew he gets, we... He's, he's the he's, new age guy that, yeah. that gets George to take all that whack medicine, and then he has like the purple face at the end of the episode because he's got some infection. I'll say this about Tobolowski: never fails. No, nope, always delivers. Never. Every time he's in a scene, whether it's small or big, he owns it, kills it, just, just owns it. Just, he's Ned Ryerson, correct? Yes. He yeah. took over the JT Walsh of like that guy. Yeah, <laughs> after JT Walsh passed away, Sammy put up a good point where she was saying um, there's an emotional connection with him because like she's pretty much grown up with him because he's been in like every type of mo- every type of movie. Groundhog and Day. So, like, yeah, I mean, like you think about the range that he has. I mean, in his in his uh, in his back catalog, like he's in so many movies. Like it's it's unbelievable how many different movies he's in and and even children's movies too. So it's like he's got a hmm. it's it's pretty eclectic. Made his debut in some movie called Keep My Grave Open, which looks kind of cool from 1977. Well, you just want to be considerate about graves. Keep it open. Excellent title. Keep my They they had the best title. Children shouldn't play with dead things is still my favorite yeah. 70s title that'll ever that'll ever be. Um fun fact about Stephen Tobolowsky that I recall, I believe it was on the set of True Stories he was talking to David Byrne about something and it was somehow Stephen Tobolowsky came up with and said Radiohead. And that's how, and then later obviously Radiohead took the, their name from a David Byrne talking head song. So, so cool. Stephen Tobolowsky named Radiohead. Congratulations. You want to know something crazy about him? Okay. Hmm. So in this one year in 92, this is, this is how prolific he is. He did wedlock Wait, wait, what? Day, this, these are all these movies that he's done in but what's the same wedlock? year. I, I don't know what it is, but okay. it's this <laughs> is all this is all just in, in one year. Okay. In one year, he did in addition to Basic Instinct, he did Wedlock, Where the Day Takes You, Hero, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, wow. Single White Female, wow. Roadside Prophets, Sneakers. That's fucking crazy. Like, I know that five is, of those movies. Yeah, those are big movies. Like, and I'll stand for Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Probably the biggest fan. Of memoirs of Nick. Hell, somebody Nick. has to be. I love it. I Sam Neill's uh, Nick. Get away from the ledge, Nick. My Sam Neill imitation from so, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Love it. Uh, another great character actor who also passed away recently, the great James Rebhorn, who's in there for two seconds. I'm telling you, they got every like good actor in Hollywood. It didn't matter how big they were. And he's one of the guys who tries to in- interrogate... Uh, Nick after somebody's murder. I, oh. There's so many murders that Nick's involved in. He's a Seinfeld guy too. Yep. yep. He's, he's the, the, he's the, the lawyer. The attorney. Which seems like more of a play on uh, my cousin Vinny role that he had. And also, speaking of courtrooms, very well known for Sin of a Woman. Yes. As well. Oh. 
my mom growing up told me that I used to be terrified of him when I was a little kid. Because she used to watch Guiding Light. <laughs> and apparently he was a villain in the early Bradley 80s. Rains. Bradley. That she said used to hate Bradley. And that's <laughs> who he was. He uh, also played a drunk businessman in Cat's Eye, King's Dominion. Yes, he's in Cat's oh, yeah. Eye. In the dream sequence, he's got the cigarettes in his nose and ears. Yeah, I remember, well, I remember let's, him that. Rest too. assured, he gets his revenge on Douglas in the game. Where he says the titular line. It's a game. It's a game. It's a game. Who hired you? Okay. Great cast. This movie's got a great cast. Well, let's go into our next section, folks. Section that usually calls upon me to sing. I'm going to do it right now. I think I love you. I think I love you. So what am I so afraid of? I'm afraid that I'm not sure of. I love there is no cure for. I think I love you. Isn't that what Mike Vanderbilt, once again, has been tasked with telling us about people involved in the music of Basic Instinct. Now, obviously, Jerry Goldsmith did the score, and it's a hell of a score. Hell of a score. He considers it one of the best scores he's ever written, and he calls it a true collaboration with Paul Verhoeven. And uh, I like this quote from him. Basic Instinct was probably the most difficult I've ever done. It's a very convoluted story with very unorthodox characters. Sounds like he, he, was, he knew what we were going to be talking about on a podcast. Thanks, Jerry. <laughs> Unorthodox characters is a great way uh, to describe Basic Instinct. It's a murder mystery, but it isn't really a murder mystery. The director, Paul Verhoeven had, Verhoeven, had a very clear idea of how the woman should be, and I had a hard time getting it. Well, he figured it out somehow. Yeah. Because they even reprise a lot of his music in the much-discussed Basic Instinct 2 Risk Addiction. It's a, it's a great, beautiful score that really, to me, invokes... Bernard Herman, and uh, I know this is kind of another De Palma thing, but a little Pino Donaggio in some ways with that stirring, soaring, uh, seductive string work and that. Megan, what did you think about the score of this particular film? I mean, it earned an Academy Award. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I can say anything (laughs) better than that, right? (laughs) The the Academy Award winning Basic Instinct. Yeah, we can only give it so many plots. Like, like, who cares what we think? Ultimately, this thing won Academy Award. Ultimately, the acclaim speaks for itself. It is a great score. It's a score that I didn't really remember, but then when I I, I watched it again, I thought, oh yeah, this is is the score. This is what, like, moves the movie. Uh, Mike, what what do you think about the... The Jerry Goldsmith score, you know, we, we obviously we've been discussing how it kind of invokes 80s De Palma, which invokes, you know, totally. 60s Hitchcock, essentially. But it's a great score, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I love a good score that could have a hook and a melody that doesn't seem to be too ostentatious. It like it feels natural. Like when you hear it, you go, oh, yeah, that's a basic instinct yeah. score. But it's not just so in your face. And like there's a this for me is like what makes this movie such a 90s movie like this is a 90s Mm. score like this is a quintessential 90s score it's got the strings and it's got that sort of cold icy chill to it that i feel influences a lot of the thrillers of this what could you use to break apart the icy chill you know i get a little pick but Hmm. uh yeah so i mean for me i i i love it it kind of reminds me a little bit of um uh actually like there's parts of it that elements of it that kind of sound a lot like um you know the total recall score at moments sure, but sure. um especially when they're on the highway um but that also sounds like the coracle score which is what jerry goldsmith did so mm-hmm. uh makes sense but yeah i mean it really elevates a lot of the tension here i think um keeps and, it 
like moving along. I mean, it's like yeah. a two over two hour movie yeah. and it doesn't feel like it because yeah. of the score yeah. often. The score carries a lot of this. And something else we didn't, I forgot to mention in the production notes, how great the movie looks. And that's Jan de Bont. Yes. Who obviously became a very successful director. I think we mentioned something with speed earlier. Somebody was involved one in of the speed. Post, uh, one of the guys poster the people, poster right? For speed, yeah. He had a run speed twister. And then of course, unfortunately speed Two hurt. And then the haunting hurt, and then you know other things what? hurt. But incredible eye, we could go. This whole other episode of Jan de Bont movies that he did the cinematography for. There's a sharpness to this film. I mean, yep. like when you think about it, it does feel sort of like a like a cocaine drip of the '80s because like '92 still at that weird. It's like at the tail end of like the crossroads of every decade. We talked a lot about this with Friday the 13th and like how like 1980 was still the '70s. I say like 1992, you're still seeing movies that feel as if they're cut from the 80s, but this feels like a 90s movie. Well, it's with cut. Like, I think visually, like you're, to to your point, it's it feels like an 80s movie, but it's that progressive sexualness. Yes, that pushes yeah. it into 1990 territory. And there's that sort of cold, um, almost steely look of this movie. And I will say, you know, if I'm arrested or I'm arraigned. I kind of want to be in a place that uh, uses more mood lighting, like a Galleria mall than say, I don't know the fluorescent light bulbs of a fucking, you know, this looks like this literally looks like the torture chamber in Bespin everywhere. Like it, just the lighting of this is so low lighting. There's always there. smoke. Great... No matter where yeah. you're at, there's always that. <laughs> well, it also thick, invokes that thick haze that you see in like a, a Tony Scott movie. I was like, just yes. going to say it's the Tony Scott open blinds with the sun mm-hmm. shooting through. Beverly Hills you know? cop two, I think is yes. like probably the best example of that. Um, Anyway, the movie looks great. All right, Mike (laughs) Mike Vanderbilt, tell us what you learned about the songs. Not a lot of songs in this movie, but what did you learn about the the tunes of of Basic Instinct? Good stuff in this one, too. So first up on the soundtrack, of course, is Moving On Up, the theme to the Jeffersons. Of course. Written by Jeff Barry and Janet Dubois. Now, that was a fun bit of trivia that I didn't know, that Janet Dubois co-wrote this song and performed it. Now, she's not, of course, from the Jeffersons. She's from Good Times. She's the gossip Willona Woods. Mm. But the song was performed by Clydeine Jackson, not performed by Willona Woods, only written. I made that mistake. That was an error on oversight on my part. Then we have Rave, oh, to the, Rave to the Rhythm, performed by Channel X. Now, this song is written by Nikki Van Loop, Praga Khan, and Oliver Adams, who were also part of the Lords of Acid. Now, of course, this is not to be confused with the B-52's Channel Z. No. Okay, make sure. No, no relation. Song's been described as being in the style of uh, the Belgium techno sound that was huge at the time. It's like I said, one of the many projects of the Lords of Acid was formed by the Belgian production trio MNO, which was the three songwriters I mentioned. And Praga Khan is known as one of the pioneers of the new beat Acid House techno scene in Belgium. And the story goes that director Paul Verhoeven was hanging out in a New York disco and heard the song and decided to include it in the film. And their music would go on to be included in Sliver, also written by Joe Esterhaz. And and somebody mentioned earlier Mortal Kombat. He composed a music album for the video game Mortal Kombat. There you go. Whoa. Megan, you nailed it. And it does that does have the same music stylings, I believe, as well. And of course, that's the song uh, made famous by the club sequence. And then we have Glowing in the Ashes by the Doo-Wah Riders. 
And this is playing in... Very optimistic song. This is playing in the, the country, the country bar. Uh, not much about the Duwa Riders. They've been around since 1978. Described their sound as high-energy country with a Cajun twist. So it's kind of that country swing thing that uh, Sleep at the Wheel and the Texas Tornadoes do. Sounds like a Walter Hill... Uh, Southern Comfort, the ending. <laughs> and then we have uh, Looking for the Summer, written and performed by Chris Ray, who I thought would be a country guy, but it turns out he's uh, this is the song that plays in the diner at Max. He's a European singer-songwriter, uh, very bluesy, very into soul, very into rock, uh, kind of has a Chris Isaac goth country kind of sound is the best way I can describe it. But in you know, in 19- I, went to, yeah. I went to high school with a Chris Ray I don't think this is the same person, though. You sure? And he, uh, he's a real estate agent now. Continue. <laughs> but um, he had a big hit. You probably, guys probably know his big hit from 1978, Fool If You Think It's Over, off of his album, Whatever Happened to Benny Santini. Can you give me a little song? Give me a little singing? Fool If You Think It's Over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, the classic slide whistle of Fool If You Think It's Over. I, sh- I always forget that part. But the, the big discovery of this soundtrack is Blue, mm. written and performed by Latour. So this guy, William Latour, he gained, I thought I meant like the tour in American. The tour. Le tour well, he is again. American. It's not, it's not, you know, that weird, you know, Euro trash techno like you'd expect, even though that's what he's doing. He gained he's no, ripping it off, as we were saying. He gained notoriety on the Dr. Demento show when he was a oh. DJ. Like, he was a disc jockey in Phoenix. So he played, uh, Dr. Mento played one of Latour's early parody songs uh, that was a parody of Falco's Rock Me Amadeus called Rock Me Jerry Lewis. That was co-written with... Paul Verhoeven's (laughs) like, we gotta get this guy on the Basic Instinct soundtrack. (laughs) Co-written with fellow Phoenix DJ Mike Elliott. Uh, Hmm. And then uh, he played keyboards in Chicago punk band The Squids, which also had a hit with... uh, Every time she calls. Well, not a hit, but it was played on Dr. Demento quite a bit. Squids played their final show at the Metro, Chicago's mm. Metro in 1991. And at the street. same time, uh, William Latour was a weekend personality on Dance Station B96, where he DJed until 1992. I, I have a question for you, Mike. Yes. Is uh, Latour still Latouring? No, I think he's uh, he is retired from making music, but I think he's still in the DJ world. But now in 1991, he released and I didn't I for, I never heard this song, but he well, he released the album as a tour, which featured blue. And it also featured a song called People Are Still Having Sex. Do You guys remember this? Uh, I, I would trust me, I would if I had heard it before. It was a big, it was yeah. a big enough hit, hit 35 on American Top 40, number one on the U.S. dance charts in 1991. What year was this? 1991. So it's I mean, a- I was going to the clubs in 91. I'm not, I don't remember <laughs> yeah. dancing to this. But it's 11 a- year old. You're like that gif with the kid, like dancing. Groove is in the heart. Yeah. I'll, I'll just, just the groove is in the heart. Right? Just, you listen yeah, to everybody's having sex. You didn't go through your okay? dance music phase in the early uh, 90s. I did. I did. Yeah. did, you, um, I did. ELF, uh, Unbelievable, Jesus Jones. Yeah. Uh, yeah, of course. But, so- the kids bop version. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but this song was a essentially a deadpan monologue, monologue over a dance beat about people having sex all over the world and how it just won't ever stop. And it included the controversial line, this AIDS thing's not working, which was replaced for radio airplay with this safe thing's not working. Holy shit. Smart. And there was a music video and everything, and I do not remember this at all. That's going to be one of those things you have to like look up on YouTube and find somebody found an upload video. It's there. It's uh, it's, there? it's official, yeah, yeah. Uh, some Chicago, Oof. some Chicago connections on the, on the uh, Basic Instinct soundtrack. 
Well, love the Chicago Connect. Lavanderbilt always coming through. <laughs> All the these cuts. great nicknames. All these great nicknames. All Michael Douglas, Michael Keaton Vanderbilt coming at it again. <laughs> Michael Keaton did famously utter, I believe, the third use. Jagoff. Jagoff in Night Shift. That's right. The third cinematic use behind uh, uh, towing with Joe Montana and And Michael Mann's Thief. That's right. Love Thief. Starring who? Bruce A. Young, who plays Andrews (laughs) in Basic Instinct. Let's move on to our next category that we have kept the name of because we've got great affection for it. One of the best Elm Street movies. It's a category <laughs> that we call Great Graphics. <laughs> what do you know? A beat my score. <laughs> okay. Guess who's back? For the second time this season, I believe, right? Rob? Rob Botton? There you go. <laughs> Wait, really? Wow. Yeah, the Howling. Howling we talked about a few months ago. Oh, yeah, I, did, I missed this. Wild. I should have. I should have looked this up. Shame on me, Rob Botine. I was mispronouncing that. Y- yes. Um, well, what's funny is when you think about this movie, you don't think about this being some type of a big elaborate slasher makeup special effects movie. But I'll tell you what, that first scene, oh, in, especially I mean, in the unrated version, the unrated version, especially. Uh, Megan, when you were rewatching this, did you did you remember how violent that first murder is of? the greatly named Johnny Boz? Yes. Honestly, yes. Ugh. Because that's the, that's the scene that stick. Like, I have a hard time recalling any other death. I mm-hmm. mean, some of them happen off screen. Like, that's the one that sticks with you. It makes its point. And it sticks with him always... and it also made its point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's almost, com- yes. it's almost comical in how violent it is, too. It is, yes. Megan, do you remember, though, like... Because it's obviously pretty quick, even in the unrated version, of the ice pick going, it looks like it's going through his eye. The nose, right? And then it's out like through the, the nose, side. Right? It goes right through the nose. The side yeah. through the eye, and then through the, oh my God. Yeah, it's amazing. It really oh. is. And, you know, there's not a lot of murders on screen, but with that one, and, and especially Gus's, it gets really violent. This movie does get mm-hmm. extremely violent, and... You're obviously in good hands with uh, Mr. Botine. Which it should be if your weapon is an ice pick. Exactly. That is not a gentle, uh, yeah. It's not a kitchen knife, okay? It's a, this is designed to break through hard things. Yes. Yes. An incredible scene. Uh, Yeah, I mean, not, like I said, not a lot of special effects in this movie, but I mean, my God, you remember the violence of the movie. For sure. Rob, this is like a weird era for Rob Botine too, because I feel like he, you know, like right before this, he did Bugsy. Eh. Still haven't seen it. Not great. Um, no, no. RoboCop 3, which is awful. Oh, jeez. He did 7, which is great. Like, I feel like if you're talking about defining bodily oh, yeah. horror For effects, sure. like 7's up there. Then he does Mimic, Deep Rising, Fear and Loathing Deep in Las Rising. Vegas, Fight Club, Mr. Wow. Deeds. Sure, Mr. Deeds, you gotta do the. Does he do the I'm, imagining, I'm imagining Rob Bottin doing John Turturro's Blackfoot. Yeah, I imagine that's frostbitten. It is. <laughs> and then, honestly, since then, he's only done Serving Sarah, which I've never seen, and then Game of Thrones in 2014. But, like. I didn't know he did Game of Thrones because I thought he was done before that. I, I did too. Yeah, I thought he that. pulled out. It says that, it says that uh, he, he's credited for 2014 in Game of Thrones, which is. I thought he was done too, but. I'm trying to think what that would have been in 2014. What major event would have needed the... Maybe it was the Red Death? No, I think the Red Wedding no, was, like 90, was like 2012 or something like that, wasn't it? Anyway. Yeah. Well, anyway, an impressive career, nonetheless, for Robert. Yeah. 
Okay. I know that when he was doing the fog, um, or not the fog, but the thing, I think at that time he was like, I feel like he was having like, um, just like anxiety attacks le- left and right. Like he was yeah. staying on set. Yeah, we. I remember hearing about that about that movie. Yeah. So he, I mean, he really went in on it because I think he was doing that and the howling, um, kind of concurrent, like or at least prepping the thing right after the howling or something like that. Great guy. I mean, unbelievable. Wish I know that. Um, Andrew Karsten, who we had for the Howling, he really tried to get Rob Bottine. Um, he's kind of the, just stopped, you know? He's, yeah, he won't. He's, he's kind of gone. Elusive for a yeah. reason. He does not want to. So, you know, it's so tough when you look at, like, IMDb, on, especially when it comes to, like, the makeup effects. It says special makeup effects one episode Game of Thrones, but it's hard to say what that entailed because Tom Sabini also got credited for a lot of stuff that he didn't physically do. He just, you know consult here oh, or whatever hmm. and you get Night- credit nightmare so. is i think the classic example of that from 1981 because there's pictures of him on the set and if you see yeah. those effects like you can feel his touch on it because they're much better than i mean i like that movie but much better than that movie probably earns yes um, but he denies it he denies that he was ever there but he is he is credit as being a consultant and like i said there's well, photos I- of him on the set yeah, I just have a hard time believing that somebody who got so burnt out on Hollywood to the point where you cannot figure out what he's doing with his life now just decided to go to Europe for an episode to do yeah. makeup, you know, like maybe he mentored somebody who is on set or yeah. something. Well, I'll say That's this. I mean, listen, Mike mentioned it. Uh, the last movie he did was serving Sarah with Matthew Perry and Elizabeth Hurley. Ring a bell now? Oh. Exactly. I, uh, according to Wikipedia, a Metacritic has got an 18 out of 100. 18 is unheard of for that low of a score. So it sounds like I'm sure that that was a nightmare I'll, to, to I'll make. I'm not after. sure what makeup he would do in that. I'm not sure what the hell is going on. I watched that after I watched Basic Instinct 2. <laughs> Which will be next to never, never, <laughs> never, and for good reason. He could have been he could have been burnt out by giving it his all to like productions that necess- didn't necessarily make a big splash upon impact. Like if you think about it, his lat his lat later run, his Mission Impossible is a huge hit. Mimic's not a huge hit when it hit first hits. Neither is Deep Rising. Neither is Fear and Loathing. Fight Club. Even though those movies are respected now and and have and some of them Either like was the thing. Yeah. Oh, that's yes, that's the, best, the best example of, of oh, it being yeah. a bomb. That's yeah. just the most tragic one. I can't believe that still. But like, I feel like that thing is what burned Carpenter, too. So like, he was just oh, like, absolutely. I'm fucking done. It, it burned him, everything. ironically enough. He couldn't do Firestarter. Yeah, <laughs> How about that? Well, yeah. folks, before we get burned out on this episode, it's time to move on to our next, like Mr. Botine, it's time to move on to our next section that I believe will last <laughs> 75 seconds. Yeah. And it's a section that we're calling... <laughs> movies make psychos more creative. Stop it, Billy. Would you all right? I can't take anymore. I'm feeling woozy here. I'm not going to beat around the bush here. The best kill is the first kill, Johnny Boz. I agree with that. I mean, something yeah. can be said for Gus's because it's so kind of, again, over the top, almost comical in the way yeah. he gets stabbed, and it's, you know, it's right out of a giallo, it's right out of De Palma, but the Johnny Boz, when that, when that ice pick goes through the nose, mm. it's Oof. hard to beat that. Yeah. You don't. Sets the tone. Yeah, I mean, it, and, and that's honestly, like, I feel like so 90s, too. You know, like, they, I feel like all the 90s films were built the same way journalists are, you know, drilled into creating leads, 
It's like, you got to hit them hard first. You got to hit them with that cold open. And you think about like Jurassic Park, speed, um, total recall. Like they all have these like outrageous, huge openings that seem sort of like um, a microcosm of the film, you know? And I feel like this does, like, this is it. Like this is, this, this is your hook. There you are. Now you're going to find out the rest. You're in for the rest of the movie. You mean like scream? Yeah, hey. exactly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. So there you go, folks. I think that was 75 seconds. How about that? Well, nice. not much to discuss now, but it is time to wrap up and give our final thoughts in a section that we call one last scare. Brandy said the killer's always superhuman. Yeah, well, he wasn't superhuman, Dewey. He wasn't superhuman at all. So let's just be as obvious as possible and give this a rating out of five ice picks, right? What else are we going to... Of course it's going to be ice picks. That's the only rating skill we could possibly use for basic instinct. We could be really crass and use other uh, rating scales, but let's just stick to the more family-friendly ice pick. Megan, what would you say out of five ice picks? What would you give it and, and why? Oh, man. I feel like it's tough because ratings are kind of arbitrary. Um, yeah, I, uh... I'm going to say somewhere around a three or a four. I mean, it's not perfect, three but I half. also three think Three and a half it... ice picks out of five. Yeah, I just... I don't want that to sound worse than it is either because this movie is super enjoyable and it is messy, but that's also why it's enjoyable Mm -hmm. is because it is so messy. Like give me a movie with unlikable characters to dissect and talk about versus these clean cut characters that, you know, like I want messy. So 3.5 because it's imperfect and sometimes silly with silly dialogue, but it's also the charm there too. And really a lot of this, like it's a Sharon Stone movie. Like I kind of don't care about most of everybody else, but she makes this movie. So, yeah. I'll just echo your sentiments. Actually. I would also give this a three and a half out of five. I think it's, it's a, it's like a camp classic almost in so many ways. Um, I do think it, it works a hundred percent because of, Catherine Trammell character, but because everybody else is so almost obscenely over the top and so aggressively over the top, that does make it enjoyable, especially when you comp it with the sequel, which is trying to make things a little bit more based in reality. You are selling the sequel so hard. I'm going to end up watching it. It's so great. No, but I'm saying, especially compared to the sequel, which is trying to be more reserved and it it, it fails because, because this story works best in this universe and of the surreal over the top yeah Yeah, in this moment in time with sun shining through half open blinds you know that's the that's reality this that this story should always take place in um great not enough credit for venetian blinds we didn't talk enough about venetian blinds (laughs) i'm telling you this movie is a great you know this movie is a great marriage of tony scott blinds adrian lynn um sex and then Brian De Palma suspense, suspense. There now you Hermes go. And, and, and white great white sash. Yes. Great time for Burma, at least in this for this movie. Um, not not until Rambo <laughs> would, would Burma be so wonderfully portrayed. Oh God. <laughs> um, so yeah, three and a half ice picks out of five for for me, and uh, one and a half out of five ice picks for Basic Instinct Two. By the way, uh, Mike Rothman. 
I, I will say I'm a little offended that we didn't credit the Venetian blinds to Art Vandelay, because um, <laughs> it is indeed his. Uh, so no, anyway, all joking aside, I actually think Basic Instinct uh, holds up a lot better than I thought it would. Um, I was kind of blown away by just how it's it's still titillating i mean it's some of it's antiquated but i you know but only because so much of it's kind of built on old hollywood tropes and i say old um not pejoratively i i say old because here's the thing like sometimes old just means timeless it just works things work and i feel like that's the case here um but i think what works to this advantage is for hoven and stone um incongruence uh with tone and in in target you know, they keep aiming for the jugular and they keep going for it. And that's certainly something that uh, Verhoeven has, is pretty much his hallmark. Um, and, I, and I think that's why this still hits hard. I mean, I think it still will continue to keep pretty much all parties sweating if they're watching it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think and that's kind of the point of the movie. And it's still the fact that it's still doing that 30 something years later. Effective. Um, having said that, <laughs> I think this movie is like 25 minutes too long. Um, I think, uh, I think some of the mystery, if not all of it is pretty illogical. Um, <laughs> I think the characters are a little flat sometimes, especially the supporting ones. I think Nick could be a little bit more interesting. Um, uh, but, uh, again, it's that primal rage, not the game, but, uh, the, the emotion and anxiety that you get out of this. So, uh, it's contagious, but I'm going to give it, no, I really love Stone in, the, uh, in this. So I, I feel with, I was going to go with three ice picks, but I'm going three and a half for Stone added on there because she's just so fucking great in this. Should have been nominated. I don't know why. she. I mean, I guess they weren't really nominating these type of roles at the time, but should have been nominated. Uh, I guess three ice picks, or three and a half ice picks and, and a bag of ice. Throw it in there. So you can and a bag of it. ice. Oh, for the ice pick. Very sweet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Why not? All right. Last but not least, Michael Keaton Vanderbilt. <laughs> Uh, so this is a fun, pulpy thriller, and I think uh, an excellent time capsule of a bygone era of Hollywood and filmmaking and revisiting it. I loved exploring the myths of the 80s and 90s Hollywood as much as I liked, you know, discussing the movie itself. And in regards to the controversy that surrounded the film, I think there's a lesson here to young film writers and bloggers to really think about what you say and what you write when you get moralistic about the movies. Because keep in mind that you may sound silly 10, 20, 30 years later as like films like Basic Instinct and Cruisin' are now considered camp classics. And that is what I like about Basic Instinct, is that it is high camp. And I don't know if... I I agree. I think that is in Verhoeven's heart, and I also do believe it's in Joe Westerhouse's heart, Uh, even though he likes to be taken seriously as a filmmaker. I think in listening to his book, Hollywood Animal... He does have a sense of humor about all of this. He is actually kind of a very funny, very affable guy. He's really not the sleazy guy you expect him to be because of the scripts that he writes. It reminded me a lot of Brett Easton Ellis, where you kind of expect him to be the characters in his movies. And certainly there's a part of that, but there isn't. He's kind of looking at that and parodying that a little bit. And as far as, you know, let's look at Basic Instinct. It delivers an iconic villain, Mm. an iconic weapon and made its stamp on pop culture instantly, and it's still being felt today. More sex and cinema, more pulp for adults. Three ice picks and a Hermes scarf. Ooh. You missed, you, you missed out on something else iconic. That sweater. That sweater <laughs> will be remembered for all time. That sweater ain't nothing compared to that white dress. Like, Sharon Stone's uh, wardrobe well, of course in not. I mean, is, I'm not an uh, idiot. Phenomenal. Is amazing. Phenomenal. Even, the comfy, even the comfy sweaters. Yeah. Her comfy sweaters. Let's talk about let's talk about 
Sharon Stone's comfy sweaters, less about Michael Douglas's comfy sweaters. That's a pretty great sweater. Wait, may you just say part three will have more sweaters? Is that what you're saying? It'll be him in his sweater and her in the white dress and the Mortal Kombat soundtrack on the <laughs> dance floor. Making his triumphant return. Uh, Gotta get that IP. Uh, Megan, where else can we, we mentioned at the beginning, you've got the Blade Disgusting podcast on the Blade Disgusting Network, and you're also on social media. Where can people find you on the various uh, websites? Uh, yeah, I can be found on Twitter at Haunted Meg um, and at Be Disgusting Pod for the podcast. And if you want to sign up for the Bloody Disgusting newsletter, the Rewind, I do that too. Ah, there you go. All right. Thank you very much for joining us once again. Two times in one year. Two guests. Well, it's rare. Six months. It's six yeah. months, right? Yeah. Whoa, yeah. Wow. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, and that's like six hours you've given this podcast. Yeah. I just, I, I applaud. Thank <laughs> well, you so much. People at home don't know. We actually record for 12 hours and we whittle it down to three. So this uh, has true. been a marathon. We yeah. started last Saturday. Yes. We're yeah. still going. <laughs> the endurance test that we still kept together. I'm really proud of everybody. Uh, Mike Rothman, what about you? Uh, well, we are going to be busy as hell over at the Losers Club, um, which you're also a part of, Justin. So we are going to be talking about Shawshank Redemption uh, with Rhett Miller of old, 80, uh, old 97s. Wait a minute. Um, Rhett Miller is going to be on that show? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Can I come by? <laughs> you want to uh, come by and talk Shawshank? Hell yeah. I love the old 97s. They're one of my favorites. Yeah, so, we'll, we'll get yeah. you a Zoom call in later on. You can talk to him. <laughs> Yeah, so we, we're excited about that. Uh, got a lot of we got a book episode. We're doing Bag of Bones, and that episode went on for four hours. So clearly, between Losers Club and Halloweenies, we really like to take over uh, the 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 time from people. Uh, but so anyway, we got a lot of stuff going on there. Um, and you could follow me at Michael Rothman uh, for a bunch of Seinfeld gifs. I probably use the same Larry David gif every other day. Um, the get off my lawn attitude where I'm just like, I'm fucking over it with some things. So, you know, yeah. Enjoy. <laughs> All right. And Mike Vanderbilt. Oh, you can find me on Twitter at Mike Vanderbilt. You can catch me on the Windy City Double Feature Picture Show podcast where we explore double features that played around Chicago, the history of the theaters they played at, and get into a little bit of Chicago history at the same time. And you're also still on Instagram and Twitter. Oh, yeah. Instagram, uh, M.A. Vanderbilt. Twitter, uh, Mike Vanderbilt. Pretty easy to find. I got a paper trail a mile long on the internet. (laughs) Yeah, my thing is basically what Mike Rothman said about the Losers Club. I'm going to be on a number of episodes, specifically this month, and I'll be on Shawshank. Uh, Mike Vanderbilt will not be on that episode with Rhett Miller from the old 97s. Thank you very much. Um, and also for Halloweenies, we've got a, a lot on our Patreon, uh, patreon.com backslash Pod. We've got a number of episodes on non-franchise movies, a lot that were requested by Patreon subscribers, a number of fun audio commentaries that we've done that have involved people calling in sometimes, sometimes people who've been dead for decades who've happened to call into the, the episode. So those have been a lot of fun. And um, podcast Ouija on standby. Yeah, pretty oh, yeah. much. It's yeah. it's a fascinating subplot that somehow weaved its way into random audio commentaries. Have almost made me pee my pants multiple times while sitting on the couch doing these commentaries. It's so, uh, it's um, it's funny because I think when I talk to angels, I don't usually start to laugh, but it's it's a pretty fun time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this has been a, a fun time, and obviously our next episode is going to be, you know. We get usually pretty good ratings on various platforms, but uh, usually whenever we discuss 
one of the David Gordon Green Halloween movies. We start to notice <laughs> the reviews aren't so kind to some of our takes. And so we're going to hold our breath and be as honest as possible. And we'll be covering Halloween Kills in October. And we're going to definitely make sure to have Mike Vanderbilt on, who I guarantee will like the movie. I'm ready. I'm ready on, to like it. I'm ready to like it. I know. It. And, and I guarantee that Dan Caffrey will, will definitely enjoy it. So we'll be sure to have positive takes. And who knows? You know what? Rothman and I might like it. Or maybe, maybe one of us won't be on the episode. Who knows? But we implore you to listen to it because you know we love the Halloween movies. Well, at least some of us here do. And we want to like the movie. And the, the cops from Halloween 5 and their slide whistle agree. Check out our Halloween Kills episode next month. Uh, um, anything else to say before we uh, bid adieu here? Anybody? Oh, can I, 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 I wanted to read a little bit of the, so I, I have basic instinct Blu-ray Oh yeah, that I, uh, that I ordered and I, I, I think it might be a bootleg. Oh boy. <laughs> Judging by the, uh, the description of the film on the back. Uh, All right. what is it? Hollywood erotic <laughs> suspense thriller, best decorating prose, rock star of the affair <laughs> in ice pick parentheses, ice pick real shot in the murder. Evidence of cocaine and an ice pick and blonde hair. <laughs> Kathleen Rose to a murder suspect, Molmang Truffle, the channel, Catherine Trammell, Sharon Stone Minutes. She found a live beach villa, criminal Nick, detective Nick Curran, parentheses, Michael Douglas Minute, and colleagues Gus, Gus, George Deonja De Minutes, and they're another blonde, Roxy, Roxy, Ray Lonnie Sorrell Minutes Meet. Oh my God! Well, can, folks, can they write all of the synopsis, particularly for the MCU? Yeah, right. Oh my God! Well, I think what better way to go out than by saying, "Be right back, Bye. be well." <laughs> <laughs> This is the end of our show, for now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, Nightmare on Film Street, and more. <laughs>